Who are the men who call themselves Masons? Today, as always, Masons are men who act on the square, who guide their actions according to their belief in the supreme architect of the universe. What were they doing at the Green Dragon? They were meeting as Lodge brothers to plan the unique event that so effectively dramatized America's fight against tyranny by staging the Boston Tea Party. What is the sign that points to the source whence flows the spirit that has contributed so much to the triumphs of freedom for these United States? That sign is in the hearts of men who know this emblem, who have known it since America's dawning. There you will find the answer. G is the initial of God. In Freemasonry, that symbol is indeed powerful. George Washington knew that sign and all that it stands for. He lived his life according to the principles for which it stands, and so helped lay the cornerstones of liberty. Every man I mention is a member of the Brotherhood of Freemasonry. Thus are they pledged to uphold the age-old ideals of honesty, integrity, and forthrightness. Tension between North and South had exploded into the tragedy of American fighting American. Despite four years of fighting, all were reunited as brothers and Masons for all Americans to honor for their valor and their sacrifice. Even in war, many were those who refused to forget the meaning of brotherhood. Stonewall Jackson, Winfield Hancock, and Albert Pike. And they've not given up, and it looks like it's very close to toppling. Here we go, Leslie. It... There are a lot of people who may not know much about Albert Pike. I very quickly deployed the National Guard. I said, get them in. After watching for an evening or two, we stopped the violence and restored peace and order to the streets. And last night, they had a little breakout again. They ripped down a statue that was 110 years old. Beautiful piece of art. This is happening all over the country. We're not happy. That's going to be very expensive for DC. They're always looking for money. We need more money. Last week, a mob in downtown Washington, DC, decided to tear down a statue of a man called Albert Pike. Pike was famous as a journalist and a poet and later as a prominent Freemason. But in the end, it didn't save him from the mob. They set fire to Pike's effigy as it lay on the ground. Whenever they found out that the Freemasons wanted to put in a statue of Albert Pike in Washington, the Grand the Army, the Republic was on Veterans fire. Hey, Nathan, I need to stop you for a second because uh, we're looking at these pictures. The statue is on fire. The statue of Confederate General 
Albert Pike is now on the ground and on fire. The word pig sprayed on the side of it. Uh, just lit up even more by protesters here. Why was Albert Pike, the only Confederate general, to have a statue still standing in Washington, D.C. today? It's because Albert Pike is arguably the world's most important and influential Freemason. And his contribution to Freemasonry was able to transcend the taboo of his racist views and association with the Confederacy. Before it was toppled, it stood in front of the federal courthouse, funded by the Scottish Rite Freemasons, standing in full view in the middle of Washington, D.C. Albert Pike is depicted in his statue, wearing a Masonic apron. Philadelphia, September 16, 1789 from Benjamin Franklin to George Washington. Dear Sir, my malady renders my sitting up to write rather painful to me, but I cannot let my son-in-law, Mr. Bosch, part from New York without congratulating you by him on the recovery of your health, so precious to us all, and on the growing strength of our new government under your administration. For my own personal ease, I should have died two years ago, but though those years have been spent in excruciating pain, I am pleased that I have lived them, since they have brought to me to see our present situation. I am now finishing my 84th, and probably with it, my career in this life. But in whatever state of existence I am placed hereafter, if I retain any memory of what has passed here, I shall, with it, retain the esteem, respect, and affection for which I have long been my dear friend, yours most sincerely, Benjamin Franklin. Franklin died a few months later, in April 1790. Hello. Welcome to Media Roots Radio again. This is Robbie Martin. On last month's episode, we ended it in the 1790s, after the Revolutionary War. Former President George Washington retired to his plantation in Mount Vernon, where he spent most of his time writing letters. The promise made by the Founding Fathers to make all men equal was betrayed. Black men who fought in the Revolutionary Army were not granted their freedom. And the man now in the presidency was John Adams, Washington's vice president. 
Things that may have been once hopeful and spirited in the new United States turned. Something changed and the climate in the country started to drift towards the paranoid and conspiratorial. And not just among the people themselves, but also among the lawmakers. A government that was supposed to be a beacon of hope. Under John Adams' administration, one of the most draconian laws the colonial world or the new United States had seen so far was passed. Out of apparent fear of imminent war with France, a relationship that had also frayed since the Revolutionary War. This new law was called the Alien and Sedition Act and set America on a surprisingly tyrannical course and an imperial course as well, stifling free speech in the name of foreign policy. Think the progenitor of the Patriot Act. In the late 1790s, in the world of Freemasonry, America became the country with the largest representation of the fraternity, which also now included the most powerful man in the new world, George Washington, who arguably was now the representative of this American-centric fraternity, a fraternity that practiced the occult. But this esteem that American Freemasonry had gained and the esteem that Freemasonry in general had gained as a result of figures involved in the revolution would quickly evaporate. On last month's episode of Media Roots Radio, we ended it with a reverend named G.W. Snyder trying to conspiracy pill the recently retired President of the United States. George Washington. He was trying to pill George Washington about Freemasonry and how he thought it was a dangerous organization that intends to erode the church and has nefarious goals to undermine governments in coups and plots. And while G.W. Snyder might have been a devout Christian, something that I am not. He was kind of onto something. There were some kernels of truth in what G.W. Snyder was telling Washington. But Snyder, maybe out of respect, gave the president the benefit of the doubt, hoping to enlighten him about his conspiracy invading the so-called English lodges that Washington presided over. Freemasonry established itself with the meeting of the four lodges in England. It then became popular in France. It was already popular in Scotland and Ireland and even Italy and Spain. But at the time G.W. Snyder wrote this letter, America dominated the world in terms of Freemasonic membership. G.W. Snyder was focused on the idea that Freemasonry had corrupted parts of Europe, 
But what perhaps G.W. Snyder did not realize is that the American Revolutionary War as we know it was plotted, conspired about, and then executed by prominent high-society Freemasonic aristocrats through foreign Freemasonic allies in France and in Germany. It wasn't a problem with the Illuminati infecting the Freemasonic lodges in the U.S., as Snyder was saying. It's that Freemasonry itself was an occult practice that did have involvement in revolutionary war coup-making and conspiring. George Washington, although a man of great interest in writing letters to total strangers, he still dodges G.W. Snyder's concerns in written form. Instead of trying to explain to G.W. Snyder why Freemasonry isn't evil, Washington disassociates himself from the fraternity, the secret society, this supposedly ancient stoneworkers guild that had occult secrets going back to biblical times. Washington disassociates himself from this and brushes the man's concerns aside. So what was this book that G.W. Snyder was telling George Washington to read that he sent him a copy of? The book was called Proof of a Conspiracy. It's essentially a book making the charge that Adam Weishoff of the Illuminati Society and the Jacobinites aimed to spread a virus meant to destroy religion by infiltrating governments, the Freemasons, and aspects of society all over the world. Did it include actual proof of a conspiracy? Not necessarily. But the man who wrote it wasn't a total crazy person either. Even though on Wikipedia it says later in his life he became a quote-unquote conspiracy theorist. How closely does proof of a conspiracy resemble modern narratives about Freemasons being involved in coups and revolutions? Given that this book was released in 1797. Well, not as much as you'd think. There's a strong focus on the French Revolution in it and how some Masons were responsible for that. But surprisingly, almost no mention of the American Founding Fathers or the Revolution makes it into his book. Aside from one mention of someone labeled as Dr. Franklin, seemingly referring to Benjamin Franklin, he seems to not negatively mention any of the other Founding Fathers. Even its focus on Freemasonry itself is kind of a punt. It too gives Masonry, in general, the benefit of the doubt of having been corrupted by toxic, irreligious elements. So who wrote this anti-Illuminati book in 1797? He was a Scottish scientist and inventor named John Robinson, who was influenced by another anti-Masonic, anti-Illuminati French aristocrat writer named Augustin Burrell. John Robinson was a strange character, but also somewhat of a brilliant man himself. At the time of authoring his book, Proof of a Conspiracy, he was one of the world's most renowned entomologists, 
having allegedly the world's largest insect specimen collection known at the time. He was also an early automobile pioneer and inventor who played a role in the first steam-powered car. His most well-known invention was the siren. George Washington was now retired, and from his home in Mount Vernon, he continued to write letters to different people, discussing politics, discussing his opinion on the John Adams presidency, which, unsurprisingly, George Washington largely agreed with. And in a series of letters from his home in Mount Vernon, he agreed with the passing of the Alien and Sedition Acts. At the time the letters were written, Thomas Jefferson's camp was now strongly at odds with John Adams' Federalists. George Washington's first letter about why he supported the Alien and Sedition Act was written from Philadelphia on November 22, 1798. George Washington writes, I will take the liberty of advising such as are not thoroughly convinced and whose minds are yet open to conviction to read the pieces and hear the arguments which have been adduced in favor of as well as those against the constitutionality and expediency of those laws before they decide. And consider to what lengths a certain description of men in our country have already driven and even resolved to further drive matters and then ask themselves if it is not time and expedient to resort to protecting laws against aliens for citizens you certainly know are not affected by that law, who acknowledge no allegiance to this country and in many instances are sent among us for the express purposes of poisoning the minds of our people and to sow dissensions among them in order to alienate their affections from the government of their choice, thereby endeavoring to dissolve the Union, and of course, the fair and happy prospects which were unfolding. He returned to Mount Vernon, and the day after Christmas, wrote another letter in support of the Alien and Sedition Act. Washington's legacy as the leader of this new free world, and his legacy as the leader of the so-called English Lodges, as G.W. Snyder said. George Washington's legacy would end with him turning against the values in the Constitution with xenophobia and paranoia about foreigners in the United States. George Washington died on December 14th 1799. Between 10 and 11 p.m. at night, he passed away, surrounded by his wife, Martha, who sat at the foot of the bed. His physician and good friend, Dr. James Craig, and Tobias Lear, his personal secretary. People in the late 1700s still did die from getting cold and not changing their clothes when they got home. Because apparently on December 12th, when George Washington was doing some farming on horseback and it began to snow, he didn't change out of his wet clothes and went straight to dinner. He got a sore throat the next morning and his condition worsened. And on the night of the 14th, he ended up dying from a throat infection. The very last conversation George Washington had was with his secretary, Tobias Lear. Concerned with his own burial arrangements, 
Washington told him, Have me decently buried, and do not let my body be put into the vault in less than three days after I am dead. Washington made sure he understood and said, Do you understand? Washington spoke his final words. Tis well. Perhaps in George Washington's last vision, maybe he caught a glimpse of the grand architect of the universe that he had so long dedicated his life to in the form of Freemasonry. So perhaps in his mind, his final word was Mahabin, Mahabon. Is there no hope for the widow's son? When George Washington passed, he had lost most of his teeth, which he had started losing in his early 20s. George Washington wore a pair of expensive, customized dentures for most of his later life. And these dentures were not made from wood, as commonly believed. They were actually partly made from human teeth. Presumably, Washington got these teeth from his own slaves, but nobody really knows for sure where they came from. The actual dentures are owned by the Mount Vernon Ladies Association. For a lot of his later life, it was an excruciating pain from the way that these dentures bulged out his cheeks, which are clearly visible on one of the last painted portraits of George Washington ever done. At George Washington's 1799 funeral, brothers of the Alexandria Freemasonic Lodge perform Masonic rites. At 3 p.m. on December 16th, Tobias Lear, George Washington's secretary, starts his account of George Washington's funeral in his diary. Martha Washington was ill at the time of the funeral. She was bedridden in her home all day long, so she didn't witness the actual funeral. Freemasons, who were there to give George Washington his final ritualistic Masonic burial rites, were invited by Martha and the family and wished by George Washington before he passed. In Masonic tradition, Masons would open a Lodge of Sorrow symbolically inside Washington's home before the service. But since Martha was ill in bed, it's not known if they skipped this part of the process. The casket was marched from Washington's Mount Vernon mansion towards a hill several hundred feet away. There were around 75 to 100 bystanders comprised of family, friends, fellow Masonic brothers, and military figures at Mount Vernon. They were there to watch Washington's funeral and casket get entombed in the already built tomb built into the side of a very small hill. The bystanders stood above this little hill and watched the funeral procession below. Thomas Davies of the Episcopal Church led the funeral prayer. 
assisted by Presbyterian minister John Muir. This is the same Reverend John Muir who, as chaplain of the Alexandria Masonic Lodge, took part with his brother Masons in the Cornerstone Lane ceremony at the original Washington, D.C. diamond southernmost tip. Dr. Alicia Colin Dick was also at this Cornerstone Lane ceremony. He was the worshipful master of the Alexandria Lodge. Reverend Thomas Davies and Reverend John Muir first led this normal funeral service for Washington, immediately followed by a Masonic burial rite. The Masonic burial rite also involved Reverend John Muir, who played a dual role in the funeral. He was assisted by Dr. Alicia Colin Dick. These men placed a Masonic apron and two Masonic swords on the casket before reading the Masonic service as prescribed by the Grand Lodge in Virginia. After the Masonic funeral rites were said, the attending Masonic brothers filed past the coffin one by one, slowly, placing a branch of evergreen tree upon the casket as they passed. In Freemasonry, the evergreen branches represent the eternal soul. As the Masons filed around the casket with their evergreen branches, two cannons fired in the background, giving a final salute. The Masonic brethren then remove the apron and swords from the casket, and then it is carried away slowly inside the hillside tomb in Mount Vernon. After Martha's death, the Alexandria Lodge acquired many of the valuables from the estate, including the Masonic apron sent from Marquis de Lafayette in France. Washington himself articulated best why he was dedicated to Freemasonry and why it was so important to him. To a brethren of King David's Lodge in Newport, Rhode Island in 1790, he said, being persuaded that a just application of the principles on which the Masonic fraternity is founded must be promotive of private virtue and public prosperity, I shall always be happy to advance the interests of the society and to be considered by them as a deserving brother. From the previous episode of Media Roots Radio on Freemasonry, I failed to mention that a Freemasonic cornerstone ritual was not only performed at the U.S. Capitol ceremony of breaking ground. On October 13, 1792, Freemasons from Fountain Inn in Georgetown and Master of Lodge Number 9 of Maryland 
performed a cornerstone ceremony at the White House. The current location of this cornerstone is actually unknown. And about a year before that, the actual very first marker laid at the southernmost boundary of District of Columbia City was laid in another Masonic ritual by Alexandria Lodge Number 22, the same lodge that laid the U.S. Capitol building cornerstone. The reason this particular cornerstone is especially symbolic is because the District of Columbia was originally laid out in the shape of a 10-mile square diamond with its southern tip known as Jones Point in Virginia and its northern tip in Maryland. The cornerstone itself is laid at the southernmost boundary known as Jones Point. The entire shape of the Washington, D.C. layout itself is Masonically symbolic. Even though the founding fathers had reneged on the promise to make all men equal, there are many free black people in the United States, most of whom were located in Massachusetts. At the end of the American Revolution, Massachusetts had more free black people than slaves. And by 1783, Massachusetts had largely abolished slavery. One of the first early communities of free black people who had some affluence, were located in Beacon Hill in Boston, Massachusetts. Prince Hall was one of these free black men who would later be the founder of the first black Masonic Lodge. There's not very much known about where Prince Hall was born or who his parents were. Some historians believe that Prince Hall was born in Barbados, in 1735. But by age 11, Prince Hall was enslaved. He spent most of his childhood, it is believed, on the sugar plantations of the British West Indies. By the time he had turned 17, he had moved to Boston and he had been purchased by slave owner, leather tanner, William Hall. He was given his name by his slave owner. While he was enslaved by William Hall in 1756, Prince had his first son, Primus Hall, whose mother, Delia, was enslaved by another household. A month after his birth, Prince's son, Primus Hall, was bartered by William Hall to Ezra Task of Danvers, Connecticut. In 1762, Prince Hall married his first wife, Sarah Ritchie, who was also enslaved at the time. And approximately a month after the Boston Massacre was when William Hall actually presented Prince with a certificate of manumission, making him a free man. By 1770, Prince Hall was free and he had learned to read and write. At this time, his first wife, Sarah, had already passed away. 
About a year after Prince became a free man, he married his second wife, Flora Gibbs, who was a fellow free African-American woman from Gloucester, Massachusetts. It is believed that through William Hall, Prince learned how to tan leather and turn it into his own trade. Prince Hall opened his own leather shop in Boston. It was around this time that Prince took an interest in Freemasonry. He believed it represented the principles of democracy and liberty. He was an admirer of the Founding Fathers. Prior to the Revolutionary War, Prince Hall and 14 other free black men who lived in Boston petitioned for admittance to the all-white Boston St. John's Masonic Lodge. Of course, no surprise, they were all turned down. Because they had been rejected by the American-centric colonial Freemasonic Lodge, Hall and his other free black companions were finally initiated into masonry by members of Lodge Number 441 of the Grand Lodge of Ireland on March 6, 1775. This is a year before the Revolutionary War broke out. And this Lodge of Ireland was actually a British military lodge that housed British soldiers. It makes sense that Hall and his companions weren't able to gain admission to a colonial lodge because, of course, at the time, most Freemasons who ran these lodges were probably slave owners and did not see blacks as equal human beings. But because British people in general had a different attitude towards black people, it made sense that they got accepted into this lodge. And additionally, this lodge was not, let's say, of the highest caliber. It wasn't a fancy, aristocratic British lodge. It was a military lodge. Since not a lot of detail about Masonic rituals was known at this time, and at this time there were only really three initiation rituals and degrees, it's not clear what Masonic rituals or occult practices Prince Hall was privy to as being part of this lower caste Grand Lodge of Ireland. Not a whole lot of details is known about Prince Hall's early life and his early experience being a Freemason. But what is known is that he did encourage young black men, free men, to fight in the Revolutionary War because he believed that if the British crown was defeated, that this new United States would free all black men. During the Revolutionary War, it's believed that Prince Hall fought and even did battle on Bunker Hill against British troops. It would be strange considering that Hall was part of this British military lodge at the time. However, there was a lot of Masonic Brotherhood on both sides during the Revolution, so it actually would not be that strange. <laughs> Historians have tried to find his official time serving in the Revolutionary War, but 
The name Prince Hall was quite common at the time, and it's not clear if he actually served an official role or not. What's more likely is that he actually served in a militia at the time against British troops. It's also been said that most of the members of his original Black Masonic Lodge also fought in the Revolutionary War in some capacity as free black men. Prince Hall was an extremely common name at the time, so looking up that name in the military records doesn't really prove that he fought in the Revolutionary War. But what is on record is that he did send a bill to the Colonel Crafts for five leather drumheads that he made from his leather store for the Boston Regiment of Artillery in April 1777. But when I say this is a military lodge, this is a building that was literally connected to soldiers' barracks, British soldiers who were stationed in Boston. Now, of course, Boston was one of the first places that was seized by the American Revolutionary Army. And on March 10th, 1776, the British general in charge of the Boston occupation surrendered and evacuated all of his troops. Because of the Brotherhood, perhaps, among Freemasons, even during times of war, the Provincial Grand Lodge of England didn't kick Prince Hall and his colleagues out of this building that they were using because the lodge itself continued. It's also not clear if Prince and his other black colleagues were given full Masonic initiation rites when they went through this lodge originally. So after the British soldiers evacuated and left, Prince Hall asked the lodge in England if he could have permission to continue operating it as his own lodge under the new name Africa Lodge Number 1. But what we know at the time is that even after Prince Hall and his 14 colleagues were granted permission to start their own lodge, they still had very limited access to what they were allowed to do as a Masonic lodge operating under their charter. They could meet as a lodge, take part in the Masonic procession on St. John's Day, and bury their dead with Masonic rites. But they were not allowed to confer in any Masonic degrees or perform any other essential functions of a fully operating lodge. Which essentially means that they were not allowed to, officially allowed to perform the Masonic occult rituals or take part in the occult teachings of Freemasonry. It actually took almost 10 years of Prince Hall petitioning the white-dominated American Masonic lodges before he used the same technique that he did previously. He conferred to the less prejudiced lodge in England. After getting denied for almost 10 years, Prince Hall finally applied to the Grand Lodge of England for a warrant in 1784. And during this time period, Prince Hall, he wouldn't get the complete cold shoulder from some of these American Masonic lodges. They would actually tell him that they would grant him a warrant to continue on operating as normal as he was before in that current lodge, still 
with the limited and narrow capacity of what he was able to do with a mason, just like he was originally. But this gave Hall more time now to wait to hear back from the Grand Lodge of England of getting an official permit to operate fully as a Masonic Lodge. Corey D.B. Walker, author of A Noble Fight, a book about Prince Hall and the origins of black Freemasonry in the United States, eloquently breaks it down this way. Recognizing a larger world in which they engage, both Masonic as well as the social and economic context of the Atlantic world, Prince Hall and his followers decided to make application to foreigners for that which had been refused them at home. The act reveals tension between the universalism of Freemasonry and the politics of racially driven society. In the face of barrier of race, Prince Hall and the other African-American Freemasons call on the egalitarian impulse of Freemasonry as they sought to obtain a charter from foreigners and the process perform this ritual of Freemasonry on the very tenets that were supposedly extended to all those who entered the sacred portals of Freemasonry. Thus, with difference in continuity, African-American Freemasonry inaugurates a spectacular revision of this ritual of Freemasonry into a ritual of race. Now, in this book that Corey D.B. Walker writes, on some level, Prince Hall and his fellow black Masons realized this, that they could use this message and this sort of universality sort of piggybacking on this idea that masonry was supposed to be about universality and that all men are equal. The real, you know, the, this real core, supposedly true principle of the founding of the United States. Corey D.B. Walker continues in his book, A Noble Fight. The rejection by their fraternal colleagues in Philadelphia forced the recognition that the universal aims and principles of Freemasonry did not extend across the lines of race. And just some words that Prince Hall had to say on Freemasonry itself. And as you can see, some of the proselytizing he did were these in these form of these orations. And Masons also performed, quote-unquote, rituals in the form of orations at churches. They would do these sermons to audiences at churches in public. Prince Hall very much leaned into this to use it as a soapbox to sort of push his abolitionist views and link the universality of the Freemasonic principles with anti-slavery. Prince Hall said this at a Boston African Masonic Lodge later in his life, My brethren, let us not be cast down under these and many other abuses we at present labor under. For the darkest is before the break of day. Let us remember what a dark day it was with our African brethren six years ago in the French West Indies. Nothing but the snap of the whip was heard from morning to evening. D.B. Walker has this pretty interesting quote from Prince Hall, delivered in a Masonic celebration of St. John on June 25, 1797. Corey Walker says that Prince Hall engaged in the rhetorical ritual of Freemasonry to articulate his vision of the ideals of the fraternity. Addressed to the African Lodge, Hall says, Beloved brethren, 
It is now five years since I delivered a charge to you on some parts and points of masonry. As one branch or superstructure of the foundation, I endeavored to show you the duty of a mason to a mason and of charity and love to all of mankind as the work and image of the great God and the father of the human race. You should consider that not only your reputation, but the reputation of all the fraternity is affected by your behavior. Invested as you are with that distinguishing badge, which has been worn with pride by the most noble and most worthy of mankind, you should scorn to do a mean thing. Walk worthy. We are to have sympathy, but this, after all, is not to be confined to parties or colors, nor to towns or states, nor to a kingdom, but to the kingdoms of the whole earth, over whom Christ the King is head and grand master for all in distress. Eventually, the grand master of the Mother Grand Lodge of England, H.R.H., the Duke of Cumberland, issued a charter for the African Lodge No. 1, later renamed African Lodge No. 459 on September 20th, 1784. A Boston newspaper ran an announcement about this breaking news, but Prince didn't care for their characterization as being called a Black Lodge. So he wrote a letter to the publisher saying, I take the liberty to inform you that our title is not St. Black Lodge, but African Lodge. By 1779, there were already 34 members in the Boston Black Masonic Lodge. And essentially because Prince Hall was granted its charter from the Grand Lodge of England, he was entitled to all the Masonic rites, which also allowed visitations between black and white lodges without any restrictions. Now, of course, white Freemasons didn't like this, and they did not extend the olive branch back to Prince Hall. But to take the high ground, perhaps, and to uphold the universal values of Freemasonry that Prince Hall intertwined with his racial identity and his abolitionist views, he took the high road and continued to extend that olive branch to the white Masonic lodges and allowed them open access at any time to come to his Africa lodge. Well, I should state just for the record that there is one small catch, and this probably angered the white Freemasons even more. And because the black Freemasons were so concentrated on gaining recognition from the white Freemasons, recognition into Africa Lodge required that white Masons actually sign a document or state for the record that black masonry was legitimate and was not clandestine and or spurious. In a lot of ways, they were looking for integration, but they also wanted to make sure that white Freemasons who were being included into their lodge were not just there to spy on them or to go there and spread lies or rumors. They were afraid of that, understandably. As you'll see later, some actually did conduct surveillance on the Black Freemasons. But after they gained official status from the Grand Lodge of England, they, they were granted this charter. Prince decided to actually decorate the lodge room. The first meeting place was a lodge room they prepared in Golden Fleece 
And to this day, some of the Prince Hall Masonic lodges are decorated in more gold and black colors, like gold curtains, gold and black curtains. This lodge room was located near the Boston Harbor. It was a different location. So they were trying to upgrade to a, you know, something that was classier than a, than a military lodge connected to military barracks. And later on, they met at Kirby Street Temple in Boston. And by 1799, there were several other black Masonic lodges that had been granted permission to operate under, essentially, Prince Hall's charter. Because by this time, he had been made a provincial grandmaster for his district by the Grand Lodge of England. But why did Prince Hall call it Africa Lodge? It's because Prince infused his original vision of Freemasonry with sort of a racial and cultural identity that later became very influential in the early United States, the Back to Africa movement. And Prince Hall is considered a very pivotal and important figure in kickstarting this movement, which makes it a little bit strange that Freemasonry is so pivotal to this aspect of American history as well. Something that I actually did not expect while researching this podcast. Historian James Sidbury said, Prince Hall and those who joined him to found Boston's African Masonic Lodge built a fundamentally new, quote, African movement on the pre-existing institutional foundation. Within that movement, they asserted emotional mythical, and genealogical links to the continent of Africa and its peoples. And while Corey D.B. Walker doesn't necessarily make this argument, another writer from the University of Utah named Charles Koronkowski, he makes the argument that, quote, prior to the emergence of the Prince Hall Order, Free black men in America lacked a significant form of meaningful group identity or community. A sense of heritage had been stolen from them, and independent identity development in early American society was nearly impossible. Charles Koronkowski makes the argument that, quote, the free black man in early America was first and foremost isolated. So back to the question that I asked, why did Prince Hall call this lodge Africa Lodge? Well, according to Corey D.B. Walker from his book, A Noble Fight, he goes into an author named Harlan Jacobs. He goes into the proliferation of Freemasonry in the British Empire and during French colonialism as well. Harlan Jacobs says, Freemasonry found fertile ground in the British Empire because belonging to the fraternity conferred privileged access to a global network that helped men adjust to strange surroundings, find fellowship in new environments, and secure employment and assistance when in need. By making life easier for those who directed, defended, and lived in the empire, Freemasonry lubricated the wheels of imperialism. Corey D.B. Walker goes on to say that Harlan Jacobs' insightful observations of Freemasonry as it developed in the context of the British Empire can be extended to other European nations where Freemasonry played a crucial role in aiding the exploits of empire. The example of the British was paralleled by the Dutch and the French as Freemasons established lodges in the colonial holdings of these European powers. Each of these countries would establish Freemason lodges in their outposts throughout the Atlantic world. 
These lodges serve similar purposes as those founded by citizens of Great Britain. Given the importance and prominence of the role, function, and position of these Freemason lodges in the Atlantic world, it would appear that the diasporic experiences of Africans and descendants of Africans would logically confront and connect with these networks and institutions. And this is some really interesting facts uh, from Corey D.B. Walker's book that I haven't really seen anywhere else. He goes on to say, if the presence of the 76 lodges of Freemasonry in Asia by 1780 aided in his introduction, Africans nevertheless had an opportunity to come into contact with the culture of European Freemasonry with the presence of 13 Freemason lodges in Africa. Apparently, this was already by 1780. And keep in mind, these are colonialist lodges, like white colonialists. Apparently, there was a lodge called James Fort constructed on the river of Gambia in 1735. There was also a lodge, the Cape of Good Hope, that was formed in 1773. There was already a Dutch lodge in the island of Madagascar. Masonry apparently had already extended to the Algiers, parts of Morocco. So it already been in Africa around this time is not super surprising. Apparently, looking back at a roster of the members of African Lodge number 549, which was what Africa Lodge number one's name was changed to, from 1797 to 1808, Corey D.B. Walker says that it shows an extensive influence of the Caribbean as a critical juncture in the extensive contact between Africans and their descendants and European Freemasonry. Out of 62 members listed, over half, 32, were made Masons in lodges located throughout the Atlantic world, including those in the West Indies. The founding of the Philadelphia Africa Lodge was, as Harry Davis has related, by members who all had received their degrees abroad, although detailed records of which specific lodges these individuals were initiated as Masons have yet to surface, if not a great many were initiated past and raised in lodges found in the Caribbean. One of these individuals actually who got his degree in the Caribbean initially and eventually joined Prince Hall's lodge later on, named Prince Saunders, Corey D.B. Walker goes on to say that Prince Saunders is listed as a member of the African Lodge in Philadelphia at the time of the lodge's founding in the late 18th century. In 1806, Saunders traveled to the Grand Lodge in England as a representative of African Lodge number 459, gaining entry into the abolitionist circles in England. Saunders would capitalize on his educational background to begin his critical work in aiding a newly independent Haiti. So this guy, Prince Saunders, ended up writing actually like a really influential book about Haiti and sort of connecting it to the ancient world. Now, by the time Prince Hall was uh, late in his life and he was already a prominent Freemason and had already gained all this influence and, you know, he had free black men from all over the country sort of asking him and, and pleading with him to let them open their own lodges. He was a, he was a famous, well-known man at the time. Prince Hall did, you know, use his clout to try to gain New York's enslaved and free blacks uh, a place in Freemasonry, but also in education and the military. Now, the military was, was still a really crucial sphere of society at the time. And Freemasonry was as well. 
So Prince Hall, in a lot of ways, was a complicated figure. He was trying to operate as an abolitionist using the tools of white aristocracy in the United States during a very sensitive and tumultuous era. In some ways, he was probably perceived as as fairly threatening to the status quo. I, I don't really know. I didn't find much in that area. But as I'll tell you a little bit later, black masonry was seen as a threat to the status quo very quickly as soon as it gained a lot of prominence as soon as 1800 came around. But late in Prince Hall's life, he did advocate a lot for uplifting black communities in the United States. Not just ending slavery, but educating slaves, teaching them how to read and write. You know, he may have been guilty of actually costing the lives of young free black men by encouraging them and advocating them to join the Revolutionary War, thinking that it would free all slaves, that it would free all blacks across the United States. Charles Koronkowski, Prince Hall is largely responsible for forming a very strong community among free black people in the United States before slavery ended. And that it also had a large influence over the black community as a whole as we know it. Now, I don't know if this that narrative is actually true or not, but black Freemasonry throughout the years and throughout the decades has been quite influential on the black community in the U.S. And here's another interesting quote where he um, connects sort of the values, uh, the alleged values of Freemasonry again with the racial struggle. He says, quote, Let us see our friends and brethren... And first, let us see them dragged from their native country by the iron hand of tyranny and oppression, from their dear friends and connections, with weeping eyes and aching hearts, to a strange land and among a strange people, whose mercies are cruel, and there to bear the iron yoke of slavery and cruelty, till death as a friend shall relieve them. Corey D.B. Walker says that although their duty as Masons bind them to universal aims and goals, The fulfillment of those ideals are hindered by the condition of Africans and their descendants in the new world. In the displacement and disjuncture produced by this experience of diaspora, Hall's ritual of race transforms the rhetorical ritual of Freemasonry by highlighting the false assumptions that undergird claims to universality and equality that serve as cornerstones of Masonic oratory. Hall was attempting to raise the conscience not just of his fellow white Freemasons who didn't even consider him necessarily a real Freemason, but for his quote-unquote brethren in the African Lodge itself. Another author named Steve Gladstone, his opinion of Prince Hall is, quote, he was one of the most influential free black leaders in the late 1700s. Now, you may be asking yourself at this point, Robbie, does this connect to the Kamala Harris campaign assistance secret Masonic police force? Why, yes, it does. It does connect. But just like anything else that's an iteration of Freemasonry now, like a secret Masonic police force that's actually a fake police force associated with Kamala Harris's people, it's very, very loosely connected to Prince Hall Freemasonry. Very loosely connected. But what's interesting is 
there are definitely some critics of Prince Hall and Prince Hall Masonry. Some of the harshest critics, which might not surprise you, are the Nation of Islam. In fact, during the Million Man March, the very famous event in Washington, D.C., where Louis Farrakhan spoke, uh, if you actually go back and look at the news coverage of his speech, reporters were very perplexed by the things that he was saying. But someone like me, who's sort of a Freemason junkie, you know, secret society junkie, uh, loved to study this shit, I was immediately kind of actually excited to read parts of his speech and see that he was talking about secret architecture, numerology, Egyptian architecture, and Prince Hall Freemasonry, and how he believes it was a conspiracy to suppress black men from actually being free, to trick them, essentially. Talking about how black masons were sort of tricked into not getting the real secrets of Freemasonry. Elijah Muhammad, actually. And what's interesting about his take is he, too, sort of uses that distinction that I was telling you about of spurious and real masons, legitimate masons. And I'm going to just read you a couple little sections from his book. Brothers, fruits of Islam, are men who have learned more about masonry than you. Your masonry has included the history of your slavery, but you don't know it. Your first three degrees takes you into your slavery. Those three degrees there, they are the answer to your slavery, if you understand. But not understanding them, as the white man would not teach you the theology inside of it, it makes you dumb to even that which you actually own. I don't like to call you such names, but it's an easy answer to the truth of it. He'll smile at his old stars and stripes, he calls it old glory. If I were you, I'd change the name and say it's old hell. That is why you go and join up with them in every society that you think he will let you in. You want to be his equal, be recognized and respected by him. He didn't make his society or societies to make you his equal. He robbed you of money to be called one of them. He doesn't like to call you a brother in no society. Now before we will tell him that we will accept him calling us brothers, he tries to call us brothers. Many white people out there call us brothers or refers to us as the brothers because we have the truth and the right act in our right position of the square. We don't do this for form or fashion, no, it is the truth. If we say that we are on the square with you, we say that because we are the square ourselves. Not that we make a sign to go by. We're the square, and we are the star, and we are the moon. This is just an act, and they have for you to buy to get among them. Elijah Muhammad says, Once I was a Mason too, until I became a Muslim. I was a Mason. You must remember that the Holy Quran teaches that a Muslim or Moslem is the brother of the Muslim. You must remember the scripture or the rituals that use these concerning a lost architect. Think over it. If we are studying that and learn what it means and who it actually really is, then I say you are wise. You must remember, my friend, that these things all now have come to light. Only in higher organizations or, we say, masonry in the Masonics, there is a little teachings at the top, but you have to pay a lot of money to become a 33rd degree Mason. Therefore, you are an absolute victim. As Isaiah teaches you, 
that you buy that which does not bring you any gain. A mason cannot be a good mason unless he knows the Holy Quran and following its teachings. This book is the only book that will make you a true mason. So as you can see there, Elijah Muhammad is actually connecting together the actual, what he believes are the true Islamic teachings of the temple legend with the false Masonic bastardization of the temple legend. And I'm just sharing with you these quotes from Elijah Muhammad to illustrate that there's definitely some anti-black Masons out there who are also black and part of their own cultural movements. So I offer those quotes from Elijah Muhammad as a counterbalance. But again, this is still some kind of a cult practice that believes on some level that it is connected to Solomon's magic. And according to a lot of occult practitioners you will talk to, and I don't want to blow up his spot, but Connor Habib, um, who is very familiar with the occult, who's been a previous guest on this podcast, has told me repeatedly that Solomon's magic is considered very dark magic um, or black magic, uh, regardless of how good or positive or you know whatever values that masonry as some kind of fraternity or brotherhood instilled in you, it's still a bizarre occult practice. And maybe, or even if you don't believe in the occult or sigils or these occult rituals, it may be actually having some real function on a plane of reality that we cannot see or perceive. And even just that alone, just that thought alone is a little bit, you know, unsettling. And around this time, as we get closer to 1800, just to give you a little update on where white Freemasonry was and other famous American heroes were in their relationship to Freemasonry at this time. Let's go into Lewis and Clark. In early 1797, when Meriwether Lewis was only 22 years old, he joined the Door to Virtue Masonic Lodge Number 44 in his hometown of Albemarle, Virginia. Even though Lewis was an active duty army officer at the time, he rose extremely quickly in the ranks of the Freemasonic Lodge, and he quickly rose to the rank of Royal Arch Mason. Meriwether Lewis was just crushing it at his Masonic duties and rising in the ranks. William Clark's father, in 1799, granted him ownership of enslaved individual York, one of the most mythologized and sort of written about slaves in the 1800s and became sort of a legend. And most of the accounts about him are fictionalized. So in some ways you can almost argue that early writings about York and the legends about him almost take on sort of a proto-minstrel theater vibe. And this was at least a few years before the Lewis and Clark expedition of the newly 
purchased Louisiana Purchase Territory. But let's go back to Prince Hall and Black Masonry for a second. And then we'll jump back to Lewis and Clark's expedition and their further involvement in Freemasonry. I don't want to throw too much of a positive spin on Prince Hall and the culture that he helped create because I want to be honest and frank about my opinions on Freemasonry and what it represents. But this last part of Prince Hall's story that I'm going to tell you is not directly about Prince Hall, but by about 1800, Prince Hall was an extremely influential figure among free black men and in American culture at large in a lot of ways. Black Freemasonry was sort of exploding. You know, Prince Hall got this charter from the Grand Lodge of England. He seemingly had all this authority. Even though these white Masonic lodges, these American Masonic lodges, did not consider the Africa Lodge technically a part of their Masonic system. Um, They sort of saw it as this outsider fringe group. They would have seen it at the time as spurious masonry which is a term that we're actually going to go into a little later on the podcast, which became sort of defined by this idea that there are, the, there are real Masons and there are imitation Masons. Now, that can be applied to white Masons sort of, you know, holding their nose up at these black Masonic lodges. But the suspicion around black Freemasonry, you know, if we're already talking about the late 1700s, there's already conspiracy books written about There was all these conspiracies already floating around about Freemasonry. We would assume that there would be conspiracy theories and suspicions about the Black Masons, because a lot of white people, and I'm sure a lot of slave owners at the time, would have been worried that maybe some of these very educated and free Black men who knew how to read and write, who met in these secret societies, because Masonry is a secret society, Maybe they might be a threat to the status quo of slavery in the United States. Those fears were not just held by Masons. Before John Adams died, he had sort of a pang of reality hit him about this, what he called as a cloud hanging over the United States because of slavery correspondence between him and Jefferson in 1821 provides what D.B. Walker says a provocative insight into the complications confronting a fledgling democratic nation. John Adams said, slavery in this country I have seen hanging over it like a black cloud for half a century. If I were as drunk with enthusiasm as Swedenborg or Wesley, I might probably say I had seen armies of Negroes marching and counter-marching in the air shining in armor. I have been so terrified with this phenomenon that I constantly said in former times to the Southern gentleman, I cannot comprehend this object. I must leave it to you. What we can glean from some of this, I mean, the the whole correspondence is rather long, and, and Adams had many other things to say, including that he believes eventually oligarchs would take over the United States and eventually... Uh, we'd have a populist uprising that would overthrow the government. Even after all these ideals were supposedly locked into the Constitution to make it a bulletproof framework for real democracy. But what we can glean from this is that people were afraid. 
after the Revolutionary War, especially, that slave revolts were going to start to be a problem. And that as soon as they were starting to worry that, well, yeah, I mean, this is sort of a karmic disaster. Maybe eventually they saw the writing in the wall that we would eventually have to free the slaves. But that once we do, they would just come for us and rise up anyways and just like come and form their own armies and that kind of thing. That was what John Adams was sort of saying. But at the time, in the early 1800s, when Prince Hall was sort of at his peak with uh, the Africa Lodge, later actually named in his honor, I should state that Africa Lodge, founded by Prince Hall, is now called Prince Hall Freemasonry. And it is actually a black-only lodge. Prince Hall Masonry is now segregated. So, strangely enough... It became later segregated for black men only, but originally Prince Hall was trying to put out this olive branch sort of as a political tool, a strategic diplomatic tool, again, to use the values of masonry, the alleged values of masonry, to create a debate about race. This gets into something that it's very interesting that Corey D.B. Walker theorizes in his book, and as far as I know, he's actually one of the only historians that has connected what he alleges is kind of a a miniature Freemasonic conspiracy within parts of the black community for what could have been a very huge slave revolt that is historically referred to as Gabriel's Rebellion in 1800. And what Corey D.B. Walker says straight up in his book, he says, at the heart of this rebellion were the symbols and the signs of Freemasonry, which is a fascinating argument that he's making because in some way it sort of validates some of the paranoia that sort of came out about black Freemasonry at the time. But at the same time, it also, you know, shows that perhaps black Freemasons were not just you know, using this as a diplomatic tool, sort of a rhetorical tool like Prince Hall was, that some of them maybe actually saw the value of using it in the way that white Freemasons had used it to plot against people that they did not feel deserved to rule them. But this story I'm about to tell you doesn't have anything directly to do with Prince Hall, nor does it necessarily have to do directly with any Black Masonic Lodge. What's more interesting about this story is that it seems that at this time in 1800, culturally, it was sort of a mainstream thought to know about Freemasonry, to be aware of it in a general sense, to know that it was a secret society that plotted. You know, there was a suspicion that they plotted in secret and did things that were bad or just secret, you know, conspiring. So this sort of cultural influence actually appears to have been involved in a major slave revolt that was actually suppressed, sort of discovered before it could happen. But it appears to have been influenced by Freemasonry. Corey D.B. Walker starts in chapter 3 of his book by saying... The September 19, 1800 testimony of Ben Woolfolk, one of the central conspirators in Gabriel's Rebellion, 
presents the intersection of the culture of Freemasonry with the insurrection. That the first time he heard anything of a conspiracy and insurrection among the blacks was from the prisoner, George. That he came to his house at dusk or dark, where he was cutting wood, and asked him if he would join a Freemason society. This deponent, Ben Woolfolk, replied no, because all Freemasons would go to hell. Upon this, the prisoner, George, said it was not a Freemason society he wished him to join, but a society to fight the white people for their freedom. His remarks direct our attention to an unexplored yet potentially significant facet of the rebellion, the adoption, appropriation, and transformation by African Americans of the culture and institution of Freemasonry and their resistance to the oppressive conditions of the American slave regime. Moreover, we are drawn to a world where actions, words, and images are overlaid with multiple meanings as African Americans begin to speak and act out alternative narratives and ideologies of the nation. In launching this plan for African American freedom, by implication, asserting a new national identity in and through this rebellion, Gabriel and his co-conspirators endeavored to press Freemasonry into service for social and political ends that were beyond the aims and goals of this fraternal order. Douglas Egerton reminds us that in the years leading up to the rebellion, the term was already associated and identified with intrigue. There were already people performing shows about Freemasonry, traveling shows about the secret Masonic rituals. There was a spookiness and an intrigue surrounding it. There was even knowledge about and a belief among people that Masons might even actually really be connected to these ancient stoneworkers' guilds and even King Solomon's temple. Corey D.B. Walker continues by saying, In November 1799, Robert Bro from Lodge Number 16 defended the lodge against some calumnies which have been uttered against the said lodge in a pamphlet lately published. He was doubtless speaking of a scathing attack upon French revolutionary ideas by Jedediah Morse, a congressional pastor in Charleston, Massachusetts, about April 25, 1799. Morse, who was the father of the inventor, painter, and reformer Samuel Finley Brees Morse, castigated, quote, professed enemies of God and the insidious destroyers of men, by whom he meant French Masons of the Grand Orient in general, and the men of Portsmouth, Lodge Number 16, to which he made reference in particular. Morse condemned secret societies, which he termed subversive of our religion and government. The pastor blamed assorted political evils on these secret enemies, including, quote, the Pennsylvania insurrection, the industrious circulation of baneful and corrupting books, and the consequent wonderful spread of infidelity, impiety, and immorality. Although Rutnia and Stewart's attempt to vindicate white American Freemasons by blaming, quote, French Masons, Morse's words provide a telling clue as to how Freemasonry is perceived to be a subversive threat to the national and moral order. To some, Freemasonry, regardless of the national origins of its members, was viewed as the very antithesis of the expressed goals and ideals of American democracy. If we take Edgerton's observations and extend it to African Americans, a, quote, Freemason society could serve revolutionary ends. 
White Virginians were well aware of the potential threat a group of African-American Freemasons presented to the National Order. Some even went so far as to express a distinct concern over African-Americans becoming Freemasons. In their correspondence to African Lodge in Boston, a group of African-American Freemasons in Philadelphia communicated as much when they wrote, The white Masons have refused to grant us a dispensation, fearing that black men living in Virginia would get to be Masons too. The opinions of the Philadelphia group of African-American Freemasons may be indicative of the interest white Virginian leaders took in black men becoming Freemasons. St. George Tucker, the author of The Tragically Flawed Plan for Gradual Emancipation, a dissertation on slavery, carried on an extensive correspondence with the Boston-based clergyman Jeremy Belknap. Belknap conveyed information and published pamphlets to Tucker on the activities of the group of African-American Freemasons in African Lodge in Boston. In an inscription dated March 7, 1795, on the inside cover of a pamphlet entitled, A Charge Delivered to the Brethren of the African Lodge on the 25th of June, 1792, at the Hall of Brother William Smith in Charleston, by the Right Worshipful Master Prince Hall, Belknap skeptically informed his Virginia colleague, quote, This lodge consists of about 30 brethren, and great care is taken to admit none but persons of good moral character, to saith the Grand Master Prince Hall. Belknap not only provided what could be considered surveillance about the composition of African Lodge to the Virginia-based Tucker, he also informed him of critical biographical information on members of the fraternity. As the Reverend Marant, chaplain of African Lodge and speaker at its 1789 Masonic celebration, Belknap reported, This Marant was a native of New York, went to England at the conclusion of the Revolutionary War, got a kind of education in a school of the late Countess of Huntington. It was sent out as a Methodist preacher to the blacks in Nova Scotia from whence he came to Boston and was made a member of African Lodge. He is since dead. Well, that's fucked up. Surveilling him. He's just like, yep, he's dead. Belknap's report on Marant highlights the extensive travel network of African Americans in the Atlantic world. Moreover, his report informs Tucker of the existence of extensive communication networks available to members of African American Freemasonic organizations. These networks could be employed for political ends that could destroy the tenuous fabric holding the fledgling United States together. Although the conspirator Ben was taken aback by the phrase, the signification on the term by George underscores the critical import invested in the subversive potential of the language of Freemasonry by African-American revolutionaries in Gabriel's Rebellion. Although Prince Hall had earlier reminded his fellow Freemasons to have, quote, no hand in any plots of conspiracies or rebellion or side or assist in them, the conspirators in Gabriel's Rebellion utilized Freemasonry in a distinctly political manner and you'd have to assume at the time that any kind of secret slave rebellion or uprising would have to involve secrecy and even compartmentalization and maybe even secret codes. So these things already resemble sort of culturally what was already known at the time about Freemasonry. Corey D.B. Walker continues in his book, 
by saying the power of such a culture of secrecy to African-American insurrectionary ends was not wasted on one anti-Masonic observer who condescendingly opined. Now, under the clause of the oath, with the Negro's superstitious dread of the horrible Masonic penalty for violating it, conspiracies without number may be hatched and matured. So that's a quote from someone from the anti-Masonic era, which we're going to go into later on this podcast, spiking his anti-Masonic views with the idea that slaves could utilize the tools of masonry to form insurrections. D.B. Walker says that Gabriel's rebellion relied on the cloak of secrecy, a distinguishing aspect of the culture of Freemasonry, with its systems of signs, secret handshakes, language, and gendered rites. Freemasonry is commensurate with the strategic tactics Gabriel and the others felt was needed in their massive effort to fatally cripple and bring to an end America's slave regime. Recruits in Gabriel's rebellion were made acquainted with the plot wholly or in part according to their rank. As neighborhood slaves joined, they were sworn to a strict oath of secrecy and fidelity. During one of these uh, meetings that Gabriel had, trying to recruit some of his top people for this rebellion. It was said by one of the conspirators that after being some time at Gabriel's house, they both eagerly agreed to serve and, quote, shaking each other by the hand, exclaimed, Here are our hands and hearts. We will wade to our knees in blood sooner than fail in the attempt. D.B. Walker says, Just As Freemasons are exposed to the secrets of the order by proving their knowledge and worthiness to the Brotherhood and advancing in degrees, Gabriel only exposed part of his insurrectionary plans to those whom he felt had met the necessary prescriptions for attaining such knowledge. Sort of under the penalty of death, you know, sort of an informal Masonic-like agreement via handshake. And, you know, this shouldn't at all be surprising. Not You know, the part about it maybe riffing off of the cultural understanding of Freemasonry might be surprising, but the general idea of enslaved people from the time using secrecy and using codes and compartmentalization shouldn't be surprising at all. Um, That's what a lot of rebellions do, you know, throughout history, ancient history. It's, It's a very common tactic. It's strategically actually you know, can be largely successful if used correctly. Now, another angle to this that will sort of set the backdrop for what's about to come in Masonic history in the 1800s is this idea that foreigners, potentially French or British, but mostly French actually, were given side-eye and looked at suspiciously as people that may want to help black enslaved peoples in the United States rise up in insurrections and overthrow the U.S. government as some kind of plot, almost like a proxy war, that they were potentially even French government spies trying to stir these kinds of insurrections up in the United States. In an actual Charleston newspaper from November 1793, it said that South Carolina officials had apprehended some French emissaries from St. Domingue with papers in their possession outlining 
plans for a general insurrection of Negroes in the southern states. There wasn't specifically paranoia against French Freemasons necessarily, but it was because sort of these French people were looked at as potential spies and that there were actually several French Freemasonic lodges across the United States that these different foreign lodges were starting to be looked at more suspiciously because of the just the very function of the fact that they operated in secret, they had secret codes, they took an oath of secrecy in these lodges. So it enables essentially sort of a, an intelligence network, same with the black lodges. So the paranoia makes sense when you consider the climate at the time in this climate of the Alien and Sedition Acts. We're also about to go into a new era of the United States where Thomas Jefferson becomes the president. And Thomas Jefferson was looked at also by sort of the more paranoid members of the public as being someone who's corrupted by French influence. And by the Gabriel's Rebellion co-conspirators, and by Gabriel Prazer himself, they had apparently hoped that Thomas Jefferson's Republicans would liberate them and might actually let them off from their trial. But sadly, what happened was Gabriel and his two brothers and 23 other slaves were hanged for the conspiracy. Now we get to the election of 1800. Thomas Jefferson was elected president. And this was essentially a rematch of the 1796 election against Adams, who he narrowly lost against in 1796. This time Jefferson won against Adams. And in some parts of the country, this victory was considered the second revolution because it was marked symbolically as something that was going to be a major realignment that people were expecting in the country. Adams' presidency was defined by a more distrusting era of the American people, and Jefferson at least appeared to represent that cloud being lifted, that Jefferson was more of a man of the people, that people felt that Jefferson embodied more of that idealistic notion of the Constitution and the United States compared to Adams. And Jefferson espoused many Masonic ideals, like all men being equal. But Jefferson himself actually never spoke about Freemasonry. There are no official membership records in any Masonic lodge for any degrees that Jefferson attained. But what is known is that the Nine Sisters Lodge in France that was associated with Ben Franklin and the American Revolution gave him honorary mastership and he would visit and speak at the Nine Sisters Lodge in France. Jefferson also attended many Masonic events in American lodges. Now, many Freemasons today claim, overzealously, they claim him as one of their own by saying that his obsession with surveying, geometry, maps, and his mathematical skills are a dead giveaway of his so-called enlightened Masonic beliefs. But if that's not convincing evidence, and it's really not convincing evidence in and of itself to me, probably the most interesting clue that Jefferson 
might have been a Freemason before he died was that he wrote out an illustration of what he wanted his gravestone to look like. And his design is based on his explicit drawings and instructions of an unmistakable Egyptian obelisk, which is a common symbol in Freemasonry during this time period, and would later represent one of the main symbols in Freemasonry during the revival of it in the United States in the form of the Washington Monument almost three quarters of a century later. But in general, Jefferson's views on religion were controversial, and he said things about religion that are more harsh, actually, than most things that Freemasons were saying about religion at this time. In his 1787 Notes on the State of Virginia, Jefferson said this about Christianity. Millions of innocent men, women, and children since the introduction of Christianity have been burned, tortured, fined, and imprisoned. What has been the effect of this coercion? To make one half the world fools and the other half hypocrites? To support the roguery and error all over the earth? And this is how he finishes his quote, specifically commenting on the existence of the separation of church and state, which he was directly involved in, in the founding of the United States. He says, They have made the happy discovery that the way to silence religious disputes is to take no notice of them. Let us, too, give this experiment fair play and get rid, while we may, of those tyrannical laws. Jefferson was accused of being an infidel and a howling atheist by his critics at the time. During the 1800 presidential campaign, a newspaper called the New England Palladium wrote, should the infidel Jefferson be elected to the presidency, the seal of death is that monument set on our holy religion, our churches will be prostrated, and some infamous prostitute, under the title of goddess of reason, will preside in the sanctuaries now devoted to the worship of the Most High. When the 1800 election had even actually been called yet, technically, but the final balloting was showing that Jefferson was definitely in the lead, Jefferson posted a letter to General James Wilkinson, commander of the U.S. Army. And in this letter, Thomas Jefferson specifically asked this general to track down a man named Lieutenant Meriwether Lewis. And in this letter, he references Lewis's knowledge of the frontier and of the military. And in this letter, Jefferson specifically says that he's a personal acquaintance with Lewis arising from his being of my neighborhood. And it is true that Meriwether Lewis and the Lewis and Meriwether families in general were from Thomas Jefferson's neighborhood in the Piedmont region of Virginia. Both the Lewis and Meriwether families were well known to Jefferson. Two of Jefferson's siblings had married into a line of the Lewis family. And Nicholas Lewis, Meriwether's uncle and guardian, was a close friend who adeptly managed Jefferson's affairs during his years in Paris. And while I guess it's not that surprising for the time period, um, it wasn't that uncommon to marry your second cousin or your cousin because the, the Lewis and Meriwether families married as second cousins. And Meriwether Lewis was the son of this family. And when Meriwether Lewis was tracked down by Jefferson, 
he responded to the president's offer of, which wasn't actually made clear in this letter. Jefferson was just basically asking Meriwether for a, he was telling him that he wanted to give him this job, that the job would be much easier than being in the military. And the job he actually wanted him for at first was to be his private secretary. At least that was his officially stated job on record. His actual job might have been something a little more interesting, where Thomas Jefferson knew that he could trust this guy, Meriwether Lewis, who was pretty high up in the U.S. Army already. Getting into office, Thomas Jefferson was well aware of the fact that the election of 1800 was extremely bitter, and that he was actually concerned that people in the U.S. military still were loyal to John Adams Federalists and not loyal to him. And he was concerned about what that could do. And he thought it was likely that actually a lot of high-ranking officers would actually be secret supporters of Adams still. So there's also evidence to suggest that Thomas Jefferson actually at first wanted Meriwether Lewis in the army to sort of assess basically the quality and the character and the loyalty of all these high-ranking military officers to make sure that they weren't going to be a problem for Jefferson. And dated July 24th, 1801, there was a piece of paper supplied to Jefferson that featured some curious symbols besides each high-ranking military officer's name. And some historians believe that these curious-looking symbols that actually look very Masonic were written by the hand of Meriwether Lewis, instructed by Jefferson, and that there was some kind of code in those symbols that actually, if you decode them, explained what their quality of their character was. And for the next two years, Thomas Jefferson retained Meriwether Lewis as his personal secretary. One of Thomas Jefferson's biggest historical accomplishments is considered the Louisiana Purchase, which was basically a ridiculous land swindle that Jefferson pulled off where he was able to purchase 828 square miles of land, which is almost a third of the entire United States, if you look at it on a map. He was able to purchase this for what was $15 million at the time, which was around $18 per square mile. And part of the reason Jefferson was able to secure this deal was through his special envoy, James Monroe, who was a Revolutionary War veteran who'd been wounded in the war, who dropped out of college specifically to fight in the war because he was so passionate about the revolution. And he was also a Freemason. But we'll get into James Monroe a little later. Now, Jefferson was inspired by the romanticization of people like Captain Cook in the Pacific in 1784, and Jefferson and others persuaded Congress in 1804 to fund an expedition to explore this newly acquired territory all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And because of Jefferson's already existing close relationship with Meriwether Lewis, Thomas Jefferson appointed Meriwether Lewis to head an expedition of people 
to this new land that they had acquired. Meriwether Lewis asked Jefferson if he could include the assistance of his former army captain, William Clark, to be leaders in this discovery. And of course, they agreed. In the months leading up to this expedition, which ended up lasting three years, Jefferson extensively taught Lewis the sciences of mapping, botany, natural history, mineralogy, astronomy, and navigation. And Jefferson also gave him unlimited access to his library at Monticello, which at the time included the largest collection of books in the world on the subject of geography and natural history of the North American continent, along with a very impressive collection of maps. And it was around this time that Meriwether Lewis and William Clark became quite close. And from some journal entries, it appears that Lewis was heavily trying to recruit William Clark to join the Masons while this expedition was still preparing to get underway at Camp River de Bois in the winter of 1803. Now, William Clark at the time still had possession of the slave that he inherited from his father named York. He was given permission by Thomas Jefferson to bring York along the journey And he privately promised York that he would free him after the completion of the journey. And even though Clark allegedly also subscribed to these so-called Masonic principles of equality, he didn't fulfill his promise when he returned from the journey. And York maintained his status as an enslaved individual. Writer Washington Irving, who's known for hyping up and whitewashing American heroes, so-called heroes, has put something in the historical record claiming that York was freed by William Clark. But in reality, it appears that York actually died of cholera while still a slave, and that William Clark had essentially betrayed his promise to him. But Meriwether Lewis and William Clark were in charge of this expedition. And they realized early on in their expedition when they started to meet various Native American tribes along their way, that York was actually one of the most useful tools of diplomacy that they had on their entire journey. Most people credit the inclusion of Sacagawea, who they met along their way in their journey, which is also quite a sad story of where she comes from that she was basically forced into a marriage of a Canadian trapper after she was kidnapped as a little girl. The story of York and his contribution to the expedition doesn't get nearly enough coverage, the actual real story of him. And it's told in detail in Lewis and Clark's own journal entries that York was beloved and almost borderline worshipped by some Native Americans who came across him. And they treated York as if he was the leader of the expedition. The Native Americans did. And in some instances, Clark let that fiction play out to their own advantage. They let the Native Americans maintain that appearance on purpose. And Meriwether Lewis definitely continued focusing on Freemasonry even during the expedition. 
which is clear from some of his journal entries. On May 31st, 1805, while they were traveling against some very interesting-looking cliff sides, Meriwether Lewis had this to say, With the help of a little imagination and an oblique view at a distance, are made to represent elegant ranges of lofty freestone buildings, having their parapets well-stocked with statuary, columns of various sculpture, both grooved and plain, are also seen supporting long galleries in front of those buildings, and other places on a much nearer approach with the help of less imagination, we see the remains or ruins of elegant buildings, some columns standing and almost entire with their pedestals and capitals, others retaining their pedestals, but deprived by time or accident of their capitals, some lying prostrate and broken ones in the form of vast pyramids of conic structures bearing a series of other pyramids on their tops, becoming less as they ascend and finally terminating in a sharp point. As we passed on it, it seems as if those scenes of visionary enchantment would never have an end. For here it is too that nature presents to the view of the traveler vast ranges of walls of tolerable workmanship. So perfect indeed are those walls that I should have thought that nature had attempted here to rival the human art of masonry had I not recollected that she had first begun her work. These walls rise to the height in many places of 100 feet, are perpendicular with two regular faces, and are from 1 to 12 feet thick. Each wall retains the same thickness at top, which it possesses at bottom. The stone of which these walls are formed is black, dense, and durable, and appears to be composed of a large portion of earth intermixed or cemented with a small quantity of sand. These walls sometimes run parallel to each other, with several ranges near each other, and at other times intersecting each other at right angles, having the appearance of the walls of ancient houses or gardens. So as you can see here in Lewis's journal entry, he's sort of referring to these natural stone structures having the appearance of ancient architecture, sort of the grand architect of the universe being able to create these natural formations that appeared to be sort of connected to the ancient world in some way, the ancient world of architecture. On August 6, 1805, while exploring the high country near present-day Three Forks, Montana, Meriwether Lewis named the Jefferson River, then assigned Masonic names to three of its tributaries, dubbing them Wisdom, Philanthropy, and Philosophy. In Lewis's journal, he noted that the names would commemorate Thomas Jefferson's cardinal virtues, which have so eminently marked that deservedly celebrated character through life. But it should be noted that Thomas Jefferson's cardinal virtues of wisdom, philanthropy, and philosophy are essentially facsimiles and kind of ripoffs of the three pillars of Freemasonry, wisdom, strength, and beauty. And it was said that Lewis was actually a little disappointed that Clark his partner, never took to the Masonic philosophy the way that Lewis had. On the flip side of that, William Clark did join the Masonic Lodge in St. Louis after their journey and attended meetings occasionally. Later on, Clark actually made a room in his own house available for lodge meetings, which he also presumably attended. 
Skipping ahead a little bit, Lewis Merriweather's fate was a sad one. After the recognition he gained from this legendary journey with characters such as Sacagawea and York and all the Native American tribes they encountered on their way, Lewis would go to his grave with no ceremony at all, no Masonic ceremony, even though he was a devout Freemason. In 1809, he died at the age of 35 at a remote inn on the Natchez Trace in Tennessee, shot to death in an incident that may have been either suicide or murder. There was never any funeral, not a Masonic one, not a standard funeral. And apparently, his friends and family decided not to recover his body, but to simply just let his body stay where it was. And even though Lewis didn't have a Masonic funeral, the symbols of Freemasonry were close to Lewis's heart and soul on the night that he died. Each Mason, upon initiation in their first degree, receives their own Masonic apron and is symbolic and worn during meetings and rituals. When Lewis's body was found, folded in the pocket of his coat when he died, stained with his own blood, was found his own Masonic apron. The apron was recovered by Lewis's family and eventually ended up as a treasured relic of the Grand Lodge in Helena, Montana. When his partner William Clark died, much later, almost 30 years later in 1838, Clark did receive a Masonic funeral with full Masonic rites. Now the fate of York is still widely debated among historians because of so much of the fiction written about him at the time. But one of the more, perhaps, happy endings floating around out there that's likely just a rumor, but still one that's maybe nice to think about is the idea that York was granted his freedom by William Clark and that William Clark wasn't the piece of shit that we probably know that he was, and that somehow he did follow through on his promise to grant York his freedom. And that York used his experience and his knowledge of dealing with and learning to communicate with Native Americans on the Lewis and Clark expedition to actually start his own Native American tribe. Now, the rumor was that somewhere out there, York lived in a teepee far outside the realm of civilization among his own Native American tribe where he had seven wives. But what we do know about York for sure and his appetites for women is that Lewis and Clark did use him sort of as a prop and as a tool and including as a sex object to give over to the Native American tribes because usually the chiefs would gravitate towards York and want York to sleep with their wives and their women. And Lewis and Clark would allow York to partake in this. The sad reality is that York probably wasn't granted his freedom. Now, jumping back a little bit, while the journey of Lewis and Clark was still going, and after they had already lost multiple people from death, one from appendicitis, and, an, and a couple more who just decided to ghost 
the entire expedition. There's a funny journal entry where Meriwether Lewis is like, we watched our guide, you know, keep getting farther and farther away in the distance in his canoe until he disappeared. And, and then he left and we don't know why he left without getting paid, but I guess he couldn't handle the journey anymore. So that's what he decided to do. Must've been pretty crazy to ghost some kind of expedition that like that back then. But during the last year of the Lewis and Clark expedition, a very pivotal figure in American revivalism and American religious history is born. On December 23rd, 1805, Joseph Smith is born in Sharon, Vermont. Joseph Smith had an older brother, already named Hiram Smith, spelled slightly differently from Hiram Abiff of the Masonic lore, H-Y-R-U-M, instead of H-I-R-A-M. But it is well known that Joseph Smith's father, Joseph Smith Sr., was a Freemason while the family lived near Palmyra, New York. Many of Joseph Smith's uncles and many of his cousins were also Freemasons. And why is this important? Why am I even saying this? Well, it's not just that Joseph Smith was born into a revivalist sort of very religious spiritual family that also practiced Freemasonry. It's that during this time period, there was again sort of a resurgence in this idea that there's some kind of code or message or extra secrets to discover in the Bible and that you yourself can wield magical powers that can sort of lead you to some of these secrets. And at the same time, the Hiram Abiff legend was sort of culturally known that Masons believed in this lore about themselves that they went all the way back to the Bible. Now, I'm going to tell you something interesting about how this relates to what Joseph Smith's family mission that they gave him at birth sort of was, where it directly related to sort of discovering the real temple legends. In 1807, on December 7th, the founder of Prince Hall Freemasonry, or Africa Lodge Number 1, Prince Hall, passes away. On his gravestone reads, Here lies ye body of Prince Hall, first Grand Master of the Colored Grand Lodge in Massachusetts. Died December 7th, 1807. Now at this time, Freemasonry was exploding in the United States. It's said by some historians that around the time of 1810, about one-tenth of the American population of males were associated with different Masonic lodges around the country. I mean, that's 10% of the male population. That's absolutely incredible. Following Thomas Jefferson's presidency was James Madison, James Madison became the fourth president of the United States in 1809. But he was not a Freemason. And he actually explicitly disassociated himself from the fraternity on a letter that he later wrote in 1832. 
He was actually asked about a Masonic pamphlet, an anti-Masonic pamphlet that became very popular in the United States. And he starts by saying, I never was a Mason, and no one perhaps could be more a stranger to the principles, rights, and fruits of the institution. He continues to say, he never considered Masonry dangerous or noxious, but he did think that the number of people speaking against it made him think that it was, quote, at least susceptible of abuses. Now, as we can see so far in this podcast, a common theme is sort of imbued with American Freemasonry in the mid-1700s going all the way to the 1800s, which is this extremely blatant hypocrisy that was also sort of imbued in the Constitution that all men were created equal because women still didn't have the right to vote, still didn't have equal rights with men, black people were still not free, and Even someone like Thomas Jefferson did have slaves, and apparently historians have confirmed that he technically raped his slaves and born children with them. So all of these people did not practice what they preached, and they all have very whitewashed sort of images of them that we get throughout different revisions of history. And this idea that Prince Hall represented sort of all these American values and and trying to put them all into practice by launching a black Masonic sect, it sort of collided with, you know, right after the death of Prince Hall, two years later, a very, very important figure in Freemasonry, arguably the most important figure ever in Freemasonry, is born. And his name was Albert Pike. This was a side of Freemasonry that, by Albert Pike's own words and statements, is vastly incompatible with the views of Prince Hall. And vastly incompatible even with the views of founding fathers like Ben Franklin, the child of the Enlightenment. He was born on December 29, 1809, in Boston, Massachusetts. He was actually born in the same year as Abraham Lincoln, and he ended up outliving Lincoln. Now, the reason that I say that Albert Pike represented a new era of Freemasonry that was vastly incompatible with the views of Prince Hall, it's because Albert Pike explicitly said that he refused to accept black people as equal, he refused to accept them as brother Masons. He was a Confederate general fighting on the side of the South in the Civil War, and he's also alleged to have been the origin of the Ku Klux Klan, which does have some sort of interesting and notable connections to Freemasonry. But perhaps the most important contribution Albert Pike made to Freemasonry and Masonic culture was turning the very obscure Scottish Rite Freemasonic offshoot to an extremely popular, if not the most popular, Freemasonic institution today, and also defining the additional 30 degrees in Scottish Rite Freemasonry, where you can actually attain the 33rd degree. Albert Pike's book, Morals and Dogma, written much later in his life, is considered the most influential book within Freemasonry.
Albert Pike grew up in an extremely poor family. He had two siblings. In his life of poverty, two of the most exciting moments for him as a child were meeting in person, then President James Monroe, and later famous Revolutionary War General Marquis de Lafayette. Of course, Lafayette was a Freemason, but Albert Pike had an extreme reverence for Revolutionary War heroes, as did most children his age at the time. And while this influential figure in Freemasonry was just coming into the picture, a figure that would later become an influential white supremacist as well, many more people of color and people of different ethnicities around the world, including in Mexico, were starting to form their own Masonic lodges. The history of Freemasonry in Mexico can be traced back to at least 1806, when the first Masonic Lodge was formally established. Many of the early presidents of Mexico were Freemasons, and apparently Freemasonry in Mexico greatly influenced political actions in the early Republic as holders of conservative ideas gathered in lodges of the Scottish Rite, while reformists chose the York Rite. Santa Anna, for example, was a Scottish Rite Freemason. Now, Scottish Rite, just really quickly, was formally established in 1801, and it had already been around in disparate forms before that, and it was already very obscure, didn't really have much traction, but it was formally established in 1801. But it still was relatively obscure until Albert Pike sort of really distinguished it as its own influential force in masonry. It really sort of took over everything and eclipsed everything. Now at this time, smaller, regular Masonic lodges were simply called Blue Lodges. The name a Blue Lodge would refer to any regular-sized Masonic lodge, not a Grand Lodge, which was sort of the, had the charter over the various Blue Lodges in the different jurisdictions. So if you hear me say the term Blue Lodge moving forward, that's what I'm referring to. I might forget to explain what that means. A more obscure war between Britain and the United States erupted in 1812, which is just simply called the War of 1812. It's the war that made Andrew Jackson and James Monroe considered heroes during that time period. Andrew Jackson and James Monroe happened to be pretty dedicated Freemasons. On June 1st, President James Madison declared war, but not before first giving it to the House of Representatives that deliberated for four days and then ended up voting 79 to 49 in favor of the declaration of war. This was the first time, technically speaking, that the United States had declared war on another nation. And the congressional vote was the closest vote in American history that was formally used to declare war. Now, the concept of isolationism as a bad thing started to come up. People started to use it sort of as a smear to smear people who didn't want America to be imperialist, including people who were already, you know, imperialist for their own reasons, like the Federalists. Um, actually, all of them in Congress voted against Madison's war, as they called it. 
And just like a lot of other things in American history, this was not a war simply out of defense or necessity. Howard Zinn says in his book, The People's History of the United States, that Andrew Jackson was a land speculator, a merchant, a slave trader, and the most aggressive enemy of the Indians in early American history. When Howard Zinn says he was a land speculator, Andrew Jackson's father and Andrew Jackson worked as business partners before Andrew Jackson became a general to essentially steal land and bribe Native Americans into giving up their land, using a lot of very sketchy and deceptive means. But I guess that wasn't enough for Andrew Jackson, because Howard Zinn continues, he became a hero of the War of 1812, which was not, as usually depicted in American textbooks, just a war against England for survival, but a war for the expansion of the new nation, into Florida, into Canada, into Indian Territory. The Creeks, who occupied most of Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi, were divided among themselves. Some were willing to adopt the civilization of the white man in order to live in peace. Others insisted on their land and their culture. They were called the Red Sticks. The Red Sticks in 1813 massacred 250 people at Port Mims, whereupon Jackson's troops burned down a Creek village, killing men, women, and children. Jackson established the tactic of promising rewards in land and plunder. Not all of his enlisted men were enthusiastic for the fighting. There were mutinies. The men were hungry. Their enlistment terms were up. They were tired of lighting and wanted to go home. Jackson wrote to his wife about, quote, the once brave and patriotic volunteers sunk to mere whining, complaining, seditioners, and mutineers. When a 17-year-old soldier who had refused to clean up his food and threatened his officer with a gun was sentenced to death by a court-martial, Jackson turned down a plea for commutation of sentence and ordered the execution to proceed. He then walked out of earshot of the firing squad. Somehow, Jackson's status of being a national hero resulted in him murdering a shit ton of Native Americans. Now, in fairness, it should be mentioned that even though Andrew Jackson sort of in the sort of takes the role in history of being by far the harshest on the Native Americans, the other founding fathers and sort of the original noblemen also very harsh on the Native Americans and treated them horribly. In fact, George Washington, his nickname by the Iroquois Native Americans in 753 was Kunotakarius, which translates to burner of towns or devourer of villages or he destroys the town or town destroyer. Jefferson, even though represented in history as being one of the more moral and just presidents, part of the Louisiana Purchase was done as a means to get Native Americans off of their land. And even though Jefferson didn't use language that sounded very harsh, if you read between the lines of his Louisiana Purchase policies, it's clear that it was designed to relocate or purge Native Americans from the area. Howard Zinn says that Jackson became a national hero in 1814 after he fought the Battle of Horseshoe Bend against a thousand Creeks and killed 800 of them with few casualties on his side. Jackson sort of used divide and conquer techniques at this point 
and he used his Cherokee Native American allies to basically come at the Creeks from all sides. He used a Cherokee formation to attack the Creeks from the back while his own troops attacked the Creeks from the front. When the war ended, Jackson and friends of his began buying up the seized Creek lands. He got himself appointed treaty commissioner and dictated a treaty which took away half the land of the Creek Nation. It was apparently the largest single Indian session of Southern American land. It took land from Creeks who had fought with Jackson as well as those who had fought against him. And when Jackson described how he achieved some of these Native American treaties, he says, We addressed ourselves feelingly to the predominant and governing passion of all Indian tribes. Their avarice or fear. He encouraged white squatters to move into Indian lands, then told the Indians the government could not remove the whites, and so they had better cede the lands or be wiped out. He also admits to practicing extensive bribery to achieve some of these land deals. And just another tale about Andrew Jackson's toughness and sort of the mythology about himself and some kind of badass instead of a elitist aristocratic Freemason, which he actually was. Just a really quick detour here. Trump is a huge admirer of Andrew Jackson. So it kind of lines up because Andrew Jackson was a total phony representing himself as the salt of the earth, a man of the people who rejected the elites, but was also just an elitist pretending to be a man of the people. Apparently, during the revolution in 1781, when Jackson was only 14 years old, the British army occupied the village where he was living, and a British officer ordered the boy to clean his boots. Young Andrew Jackson refused. Yeah, right, dude. You clean that fucking British soldier's boots. You know you did. Good little boot cleaner. The officer struck him a blow on the forehead with the hilt of his sword, leaving a scar, which Andrew Jackson retained all his life. He also retained all his life a hatred of the British. And back to the war. During the War of 1812, British soldiers, led by Major General Robert Ross stormed Washington, D.C., and burned down several important buildings, including the original White House, which was burnt down on August 24, 1814. James Madison and a bunch of the U.S. military and James Madison's government at the time had to flee the city in the wake of a British victory at Blandensburg. Most of the U.S. Capitol building at the time also was burnt down. The building that had the original cornerstone laid by Washington in the Alexandria Lodge of Virginia. The Capitol at the time contained the 3,000 volume collection of the Library of Congress, which was destroyed in the fire, including Thomas Jefferson's personal book collection. When the British burned the U.S. Capitol in the White House, Madison removed his Secretary of War and replaced him with James Monroe, appointing him as Secretary of War on September 27, 1814. Eventually, they won against the British again, but not before killing a shitload 
of Native Americans in the process and acquiring even more territory through spurious means. In 1816, the United States presidential election was held. It was the eighth quadrennial presidential election. James Monroe was running on the Democrat-Republican ticket. Federalist Rufus King was defeated on December 4, 1816. James Monroe was elected in. As I said earlier, James Monroe was a dedicated Freemason. He'd actually been a Freemason, made a Mason at the Williamsburg Lodge in Williamsburg, Virginia, at the age of 17 on November 9th, 1775. Technically, this makes James Monroe the second president of the United States that was a Freemason. On March 4th, 1817, James Monroe opened the new White House that he ordered the construction of after most of it was burnt down. James Monroe consulted the original architect of the White House, James Hoban, who made a distinctly more temple-like, round-column decorated shape for the new White House. James Hoban also happened to be a Freemason. Hoban was a member of Georgetown Lodge No. 9. It was later a founding member of Federal Lodge No. 15. He was also a royal archmason. Monroe was a seasoned veteran of politics and of Freemasonry. He had already served in the administrations of Washington, Jefferson, and Madison. And now he was the President of the United States. Monroe was apparently a figure that didn't get along very well with his peers. And even though he had served in all these administrations and had a long career in politics, he eventually had a falling out with George Washington and James Madison. By 1817, Joseph Smith, who later founded the Mormon Church, moved with his family to western New York, which was the site of intense religious revivalism during the Second Great Awakening in the United States. It's not known exactly when his brother Hiram became a Freemason, nor it is known exactly when Joseph Smith got fascinated with Freemasonry and started being heavily influenced by it. We know when he joined a lodge later in his life. But his father had indoctrinated the family into the practice, and there was a strong understanding in the family about what Freemasonry was. And even in the background, a greater cultural understanding of the secret society. According to researcher and author Cheryl Bruno, part of Smith's family upbringing in religious revivalism included a belief that there was a true masonry that did have real temple rituals from King Solomon's temple, whereas the culturally popular American Freemasonry was spurious or not an authentic representation of the true mystical temple rituals. It is said by Cheryl Bruno that Joseph Smith was led to believe early in his life that he was destined to be the one to join spurious and true masonry together. 
author Peter Lavanda, who's most well known for his books discussing Nazi Germany's beliefs in the occult. He has a very fascinating book called The Angel and the Sorcerer about the Mormon Church's occult and Freemasonic origins. In Peter Lavanda's book, he says, Mormonism, in order to be understood, must be viewed through the lens of occultism, and particularly of the hermetic form that Joseph Smith embraced throughout his life, and especially in the last five years or so, when he incorporated Masonic and other ideas, such as differing levels of priesthood, into the Mormon temple. It was as if he had seen something ineffable and had to surround it with a fortress of secrets, passwords, arcane rituals, and silence in order to protect it from misuse or profanation. It can be said that much of the secrecy has gone out of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. The only remaining secrets in these three Abrahamic faiths are to be found in their mystical analogs in Jewish Kabbalah, Christian mysticism such as Rosicrucianism, and Islamic mystical sects such as the Sufis. Secrecy and religion do not, as a rule, go together. But secrecy and occultism, the very word occult means secret or hidden, do. What Smith did was to incorporate a mystical practice or process within a religion, making it the central feature of the organization, if not of the faith itself. The basis for this occult approach to religion is to be found in Smith's early spiritual practices. We have mentioned that he began his career by divining for water and for buried treasure. This was not as Antonium as it might appear, since there was a tradition of the divining rod in that part of the world that has continued to the present day. While the alchemists tried to manufacture gold, the diviners simply went looking for it. The diviner's assumption was that the gold already existed, either as ore or as buried treasure, and all that was required was kind of a mystical ground-penetrating radar to find it. The alchemist's assumption was that all metals naturally evolved towards gold, the perfect metal. The easier approach was to simply look for gold that already existed. This anyone could do provided they had a forked stick and limitless patience. But what separated the successful diviner from the failed seeker after gold was the character of the diviner himself, and they were usually men? The diviner had to demonstrate a connection with the invisible forces that guarded the treasure, either through prayer or through some charismatic aspect of his personality. Thus, some diviners were celebrated for their abilities, and this included the young Joseph Smith Jr., it is generally acknowledged that Smith had a knack for finding things with his divining rod and later his, quote, shrew stone. For a 12-year-old farm boy with a divining rod, the possibility of becoming something other, something valuable, must have been irresistible. And the pressure to find money, buried treasure, or gold, likewise, must have been intense. Like a Zen Cohen the solution was not necessarily logical. Making the rounds of bookstores in the early 19th century was an encyclopedic work by Francis Barrett entitled The Magus. Published in 1801 in England, it is a compendium of occult lore, and most especially 
of that discipline known as ceremonial magic, taken from such authoritative sources of the three books of occult philosophy by Cornelius Agrippa, as well as the fourth book of occult philosophy. While we are not certain precisely when Joseph Smith first set his eyes on this book, it is beyond doubt that he was working with a copy in the period shortly before his death for the design of the talisman that he was wearing on the day he was murdered, which came directly from the pages of the Magus. Ceremonial magic is, as its name implies, a form of magic that relies heavily on the correct performance of ritual. These rituals are designed to contact spiritual forces directly through the use of invocations, ritual gestures, incenses, appropriate to the spiritual force being summoned. The alchemist has his crucible and retort, his alembic and oven. In the alembic, a piece of raw material is sealed and operations performed on it to initiate its physical transformation. The magician, on the other hand, is the raw material of the transformation, and the ritual chamber, the magic circle, is his alembic. To simplify, in the alchemist's laboratory, lead is transformed into gold. In the magic circle, the lead transforms itself. Joseph Smith did not understand this at first, not when he was a young teenager practicing magic for the first time. However, as he matured into his role as the prophet, he realized that the first steps he took on the path of ceremonial magic were leading him towards the same conclusion. This is evident from observing the development of Mormonism from just another quasi-Christian denomination into an initiatory structure with secret ceremonies and higher and higher levels of spiritual responsibility. The end result of all this refinement can only be the apotheosis, the goal of hermeticism and of ceremonial magic, as well as alchemy in particular. The Magus sets all this out quite clearly. While sections of the book are devoted to the manufacture of talismans, natural magic, alchemy, potions, and philtres, and the Kabbalah, the portion of the book that usually attracts the most attention is that on ceremonial magic. Barrett insists that a person be morally pure before engaging in these pursuits. As the quotation that begins this section indicates, Barrett states that the goal of all this is to attain the divine light and to help other human beings in their suffering thereby. We may find precursors to the Mormon prohibition against alcohol and caffeine in this preface to the Magus. Purity, however, was an important element of early Mormonism and even of Smith's ability to find the gold plates on which the Book of Mormon was inscribed, as we will see. But the characterization of the magician as someone who is possessed of divinity and uses that power to help others must have impressed itself on the mind of Joseph Smith, who effectively elevated the status of magician to that of divinely inspired prophet. The connection between Joseph Smith as magician to Joseph Smith as prophet is a direct one, a solid line rather than a dotted line, for it is the ritual of magic that produced the Book of Mormon and created a new religion. Now, Peter Lavanda is definitely more of a believer in the supernatural and in the occult than I am, but his analysis is very on point in terms of Mormonism being intertwined with the occult. And 
even though I'm sure Mormons would definitely not like to admit that, there's one other thing about Mormonism that is absolutely true as well, and that is the extreme Freemasonic influence that leaves a very distinct aesthetic and mythical imprint on Mormonism as we know it. The Mormon church themselves try to disassociate certain aspects of Freemasonry from the Mormon church today and the temple ritual and even the aesthetics of Mormonism and the rituals of it. But the similarities are unmistakable. And a little later, I'm going to play for you some videos, actually, that come officially from the Church of the Latter-day Saints that explain why there's parallels between Freemasonry and Mormonism. But Cheryl Bruno makes a really good point, which is that even though the, the similarities, you can still see them today, they're unmistakable. And just one similarity I'll say for now is that in the Mormon temple endowment ritual, when they baptize you to become uh, a different rank of in the priesthood, the Mormon priesthood, uh, you do it in a giant pool that's modeled after the Molten Sea and King Solomon's Temple. Temple ritual in Mormonism is based off King Solomon's Temple. No coincidence that this has similarities to Freemasonry. But Cheryl Bruno explains that at the time, the similarities between the Mormon temple ritual, endowment ritual, and the Freemasonic royal arch degree have these extreme similarities. But I'm going to jump around a little bit in this because I just want to establish right now this idea that there was this sort of perception that Freemasonry was channeling something that was possibly real, but it had been bastardized and degenerated, that it was based on a real temple ritual that had been corrupted and degenerated. Some later Mormons, specifically Henry C. Kimball, actually did believe that the endowment ritual in Mormonism was passed down by God in its original form at the Temple of Solomon, but that, that the form of, that Freemasons used was a degenerated version of that. And Henry C. Kimball said, quote, We have the true masonry. The masonry of today is received from the apostasy which took place in the days of Solomon and David. They have now and then a thing that is correct, but we have the real thing. So that supports Cheryl Bruno's theory that Joseph Smith had discovered the true and real temple ritual from King Solomon's temple. Now, there are a lot more similarities between masonry and Mormonism that I'm going to get into later, but I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Joseph Smith's visions that he started having. Peter Lavanda says in his book, Smith experienced a series of visions including one in 1820, which we saw two personages, presumably God the Father and Jesus Christ, and another in 1823, when an angel, or some say an angel, 
directed him to a buried book of golden plates. His first operations of ceremonial magic began in earnest. On September 22, 1823, 130 years to the day after the execution of Marytown Eastie as a witch in Salem, Massachusetts, after accusations of witchcraft by Smith's ancestor, Samuel Smith, an event which the Smith family certainly remembered, as Joseph would one day return to Salem to seek buried treasure in his ancestors' neighborhood. It was also the first day of autumn and the first degree of the sign of Libra. As one of the quarter days of the year, it formed part of the occult calendar with which Smith was familiar from his reading of occult texts or from common knowledge as presented in the almanacs of the period. At the time of this all-important magical operation, Joseph Smith was not yet 18 years old. Up to this time, Smith had been using a shoe stone or seer stone This was a stone that he would put into a hat and then peer into the hat at the stone and thereby obtain visions. Evidently, the placement of the stone in the hat would ensure that Smith could gaze onto the stone in darkness as he held the hat up to his face. One of his visions was of a spirit who told him that golden plates were buried in a cave on the hill Camorra. There was no hill named Camorra at the time, the word Camorra having come from the Book of Mormon itself. There also is some controversy as to just which hill in the Palmyra region which would have been Camorra. The area is riddled with drumlins, which are ripples in the earth caused by glacier movements. None of the drumlins would have had a natural cave, but perhaps that is the point. In any event, armed with his vision and with instruments necessary for a ritual and ceremonial magic, Smith retired to the hill in question, and at the stroke of midnight, on September 22, 1823, performed the occult evocation. It was by his account a success. The golden plates were revealed. However, according to one version of the story, as he made to grab them from their resting place, an amphibious creature of some sort jumped out of the cave, turned into a man, and hit him on the head burying the plates once more and keeping them out of the reach of the teenaged magician. But why did the spirit prevent Smith from taking the golden plates? According to Smith, it was because Smith's own motives were not pure. He was thinking only of the gold and enriching himself thereby, and not of the higher spiritual matters. Smith would keep returning to the hill, Camorra, and its mysterious cave year after year, from 1823 to 1827 on the same day and we'll return to Smith's story when we get closer to 1827 because we have a lot of story in between then to tell you America started to shift again to acting as if it was entitled enough not just to defy or to compete with the French or British empires, but to also act like it had some kind of domain over not just its own land, which it was continuing to buy up in fire sales and expansionist wars, 
but it was also now claiming domain to the entire hemisphere. And this is when we get to the Monroe Doctrine. Whether this is an extension of this sort of entitlement that Freemasonry imbued in the American mentality or not, it's hard to say. But the Monroe Doctrine was a U.S. policy delivered to Congress in December 1823. It was sort of buried under the address that James Monroe made. But what it meant was extremely impactful. At the time, it was actually viewed as isolationist and non-imperialist by people. Even Great Britain appreciated the notion and shared similar objectives to the Monroe Doctrine, because what it did was it said that this hemisphere is ours, this new world side of the globe, and that old world side of the globe is yours, and we're not going to interfere with each other. But at the same time, if you try to interfere with our hemisphere, we'll take it as a, basically an attack on our own country. So that's something that was sort of logically in the framework of that. That's what it means. Yet this legislation was seen at the time as being somehow a peace treaty. But now, as we've seen in the Trump era, that's sort of being played again, but used as an imperialist tool for South America. That we can claim there's foreign meddling happening in South America, like in Venezuela. We can just say Iran and Russia and China are meddling there. Therefore, we need to overthrow the government there and put in our own government. So this is, again, America drifting into a more imperialist entitled course under the guise of some kind of morality that it was actually protecting these places in Latin America that hadn't been taken over by colonialism yet. And the parallel to today is that in some of the wording in the Monroe Doctrine says that they would not tolerate colonialization or puppet monarchs if the Trump administration is alleging that Maduro is essentially a puppet dictator of Putin, the leaders of Iran and China. That's kind of saying the same thing. And I should also mention this, that John Quincy Adams, who was the Secretary of State under James Monroe, was actually the primary author of the Monroe Doctrine. And the idea probably came from him. Because even though for some reason John Quincy Adams is now considered some kind of anti-war or anti-imperialist figure in history. There's now sort of an anti-war think tank called the Quincy Institute named after him. He was actually the primary author of the Monroe Doctrine, which, you know, at the time was perceived as some kind of peace agreement. So maybe that's part of why. But also John Quincy Adams had already said stuff that sounded very sort of Masonic slash imperialist and sort of messianic about the United States. John Quincy Adams actually said that America is destined by the finger of God. And I actually learned that from a Robert Kagan book, and it's an actual real quote from John Quincy Adams. So even though he was not a Freemason, he still embodied these sort of messianic, you know, that America had some kind of religious spirituality guiding it in the hand of God, the finger of God. Now we get to the election of 1824. It was a hotly contested election 
between John Adams' son, John Quincy Adams, who now risen in the ranks in politics, Freemason Andrew Jackson, famous military general, William H. Crawford, and Henry Clay. All of these politicians were members of the Democrat slash Republican Party, which was a single party at the time. No candidate won a majority of the electoral vote, so the House of Representatives at the time held a contingent election to determine the president, and Adams won that contingent election with the support of Henry Clay. And after John Adams got inaugurated, Democrat slash Republican Party polarized into two major new camps. One of these camps was known as the National Republican Party, which supported President Adams, and the other group, known as the Democratic Party, was led by Andrew Jackson. And at the time, Andrew Jackson was the leader, essentially, of this opposition party. Now we arrive again at Albert Pike. Albert Pike got accepted to Harvard in August 1825, when he was only 16 years old. This speaks to Albert Pike's intelligence and how even though he came from poverty, essentially, that he was somehow very fast and skilled, self-taught young man. And at age 16, apparently he was already six foot tall and 300 pounds. And also was a very eccentric young man who had long flowing hair. It was at this time that he had already become obsessed with poetry and writings of the Renaissance and Enlightenment period. A year later, Albert Pike had worked hard for himself at the age of 16 to 17. He finally made enough money to pay the tuition fees at Cambridge, and he tried to enter Cambridge already as an advanced student because he had already been accepted by passing the exam, the entry exam, at Harvard. Now, one of the requirements for being a freshman or a sophomore was learning English grammar, Latin, Greek, French, Spanish, Italian, trigonometry, calculus, and Roman antiquities. Apparently, Pike had borrowed a bunch of books from a bunch of other people that he knew to learn these subjects in advance of taking the Cambridge entry exam, which when he arrived to take it, he became basically an expert in all these subjects and passed it very easily. What he found out, much to his dismay, is that the Cambridge fees that he had saved up to pay for, because he believed they were only $100 per year, had actually doubled because to join in as an advanced student at Cambridge you actually have to pay an additional $100 on top of the regular tuition fees per year, which Albert Pike could definitely not afford. So, feeling defeated, he decided to return home, but was able to become a teacher. And he was a teacher at the age of 17 for several years. And during this time period, he fell in love with one of his students and became obsessed more deeply with poetry. The classroom Pike taught in, in Newbury, Connecticut, 
was below a Masonic hall in the building. Perhaps this is when Albert Pike first became interested in Freemasonry, although he didn't put anything in his journal entries about it. Where one of his final journal entries before leaving his job as a teacher in Newbury, Connecticut, before deciding to head west on a pretty extreme adventure, Albert Pike had this to say while in his classroom underneath the Masonic Hall. He's talking about his fair golden-haired student named Elizabeth Perkins, who he had fallen in love with. I had seen Elizabeth for the last time, had told her sister Caroline that I was going away because I was too poor to hope to marry her, but had not said to herself a word of my intentions, had kissed her sister for her because she pitied me and was to take the stage to Boston on my way west the next morning. It was a night of wassail and carousel of song and wine and all the greater gaiety and laughter for the heartache that I could not hide and the cause of which they knew. But enough about Albert Pike for now. Let's go to another man who may not be well-known in history, but actually plays an extremely pivotal role in our story. William Morgan was a man born in Culpeper, Virginia, from a poor family in 1774, two years before the revolution. He built himself up as a teenager, apprenticing as a stonecutter, and then later a bricklayer. After saving up enough money, he opened up his own shop in Richmond. Not much is known about Morgan's early life, except that he used to tell people he was a captain in the War of 1812. But this hasn't been confirmed by historians, perhaps an early sign that Morgan wanted to portray himself as an important person for more means than he actually had and perhaps a little social engineering helped here and there to establish credibility among higher society people in town. October 1819, when Morgan was only 45 years old, he married 19-year-old Lucinda Pendleton, with whom he had two children, Lucinda Wesley Morgan and Thomas Jefferson Morgan, of course, named after the third president of the United States, whose gravestone is an Egyptian obelisk. Morgan relocated his wife and two children to Toronto, and then later to York, Canada, where he opened up his own brewery. This was, at this point, the best time in Morgan's life. Even though he's in his mid-40s, he was able to now provide for his own family with his new trade, This business worked well for his situation at the time. He was by no means a rich or wealthy man. He would have been considered poor, but he was still able to support his wife and two children and gained a decent reputation in town. Unfortunately, this changed overnight when Morgan's brewery building had burned completely to the ground in a mysterious fire. A fire that didn't just decimate Morgan and his family into total poverty, but it also maybe instilled in him a sense of paranoia 
The reason I say mysterious is because Morgan believed that someone had deliberately burnt it down. Perhaps a local competitor. This unfortunate series of events forced him and his family to relocate again, this time to Rochester, New York. Rochester at the time was a bustling economic hub for people desperate for work. Morgan found himself unable to find consistent work in Rochester. But Morgan got wind of a small town called Batavia, New York, and he heard about all the new construction happening there. He figured his experience as a stonecutter and a bricklayer could sustain him if he moved his family to Batavia. It was at this time that Morgan took a genuine interest in speculative masonry, actual Freemasonry, not just freestone masonry or stonemasonry, which was now his trade again. While living in Batavia in 1825, Morgan visited the Leroy's Western Star Chapter Number 33 Freemasonic Lodge in Leroy, New York, which would have been about an hour away by horseback or four hours on foot. He told the Masons in the Leroy Lodge that he already obtained his Master Mason degree from a lodge in Canada and that he was also a member already of the Rochester Lodge. That wasn't actually true. He never joined the Rochester Lodge. Since telephones didn't exist at the time, the Masons at Leroy couldn't just call up the Rochester Lodge and vouch for his membership. Rochester was three hours away by horseback and eight hours away on foot. They'd have to send a letter to the Rochester Lodge, which apparently they eventually did. But until they heard back, Morgan was able to obtain his Royal Arch degree of Freemasonry from the Leroy Lodge. Once the Leroy Lodge members realized he was making up his Masonic membership when they heard back from Rochester, they excommunicated him from the Lodge. Morgan, feeling defeated and maybe embarrassed, this still didn't stop Morgan from trying his ploy again in his own town of Batavia, which had just opened a Masonic Lodge in 1826. Keep in mind that Morgan was trying to feed his family, and he had returned to a craft that didn't pay very well at the time, that he had initially started on when he was only a teenager. But now a man in his early 50s, Morgan was tired. It said that Morgan resorted to heavy drinking during this time to bury his depression and feelings of inadequacy. So, wouldn't it make sense that joining the Freemasons could give someone like Morgan a leg up in society, boost in confidence perhaps, establish his standing in the local community that he wasn't merely just a poor man, but a man of class and character, a man who lives by the square, a Freemason. Morgan's mistake was lying to the Freemasons in the first place. A mistake that he would later find out was an unforgivable offense. Morgan used social engineering skills to convince a Masonic Lodge who was experienced enough to get a Royal Arch degree. I think this shows that Morgan wasn't just a typical con artist 
or social engineer, but someone who actually studied Freemasonry. He named his child after Thomas Jefferson. In some ways, Morgan probably even revered Freemasonry and invested in its spiritual practices. But none of that mattered at this point because his membership started based on a lie. Batavia Masons were also fooled by Morgan's supposed Masonic credentials and signed him up as one of their very first members when they opened their lodge. Eventually, the Batavia Masons got word via the Leroy Lodge that Morgan was lying about his credentials. Batavia quickly banned Morgan from their lodge, and it eventually became clear to Morgan that he had blown up his facade. And unless he relocated again, perhaps somewhere else, maybe far away, by angering the local Masons, he might have even hurt his chances at establishing wealth for his family in the area. This sent Morgan into a bitter rage, but not just a drunken rage where he was defeated, disappeared into historical obscurity. This sent Morgan into sort of a calculated rage that he channeled into an ingenious strategy, really. A strategy that was almost a game of chicken with the local Freemasons. You would think at that time someone would be so ashamed of having been caught for lying about their Masonic credentials. But he made them a proposal. Morgan wasn't like other men. Morgan went back to the Batavia Lodge and confronted the Masons there. And he told them, I will reveal your secrets if you do not make me a member. I will publish your Masonic secrets, not just of this lodge, but of the rituals and the special codes and the special handshakes. I will publish it if you do not grant me membership as a Mason in your lodge. Apparently, these Batavia Masons gave him the brush off and essentially told him to go fuck himself. They didn't care. Because... I guess at the time, they believed that William Morgan was lying about all his Masonic credentials. But if you remember what I just told you, that apparently he did receive his Royal Arch degree based on a lie in Leroy. Morgan was obviously clearly familiar with Freemasonry enough to scam two Masonic lodges at this point into believing that he was an experienced Freemason. And maybe... The Masons called his bluff. Maybe they didn't think a man who was a stonecutter, who had just relocated his family, a man of not very much wealth, was capable of anything seriously threatening to the Freemasonic fraternity. But this quickly changed when it was discovered that Morgan was actually soliciting local publishers and trying to cut deals with them on an entire book, or rather a pamphlet, revealing all these Masonic secrets. At this point, a few so-called overzealous Freemasons threatened Morgan with bodily harm. They also told him that they would make sure that no copies of that book were released. 
this all seems rather ominous, but somehow Morgan was not afraid, at least not at this point. And it should be stated also that Morgan had already tried to join York Lodges of the York Rite. The Scottish Rite, as we know it in Freemasonry, had just been formally founded. And at the time, Blue Lodges were already very well known in the United States. Most people were even culturally aware of the way Masons looked during the rituals in Blue Lodges and some of the degrees in Blue Lodges. Blue Lodges referred to regular Masonic Lodges that had the first three degrees. York Lodges had many more degrees, and as we'll talk about later, Scottish Rite Lodges have 33 degrees. But it still must be stated that even at this time, it must have been really sensitive still for anybody to want to release a book just covering the regular Blue Lodge Masonic rituals, which is what it appears that William Morgan's book was revealing. Morgan's book already had a title. It was going to be called Illustrations of Masonry. And it wasn't just going to be a bunch of textual breakdowns of Masonic secret degrees, their rituals, and their work in detail. It was also going to have illustrations of all their secret rituals, all their secret attire. In late August 1826, Morgan announced that a local newspaper publisher, David Cade Miller, had given him a sizable advance for this expose. David Cade Miller himself is said to have received the entered apprentice degree, the first degree of Freemasonry, in a local Batavia lodge. But at this point, he had been stopped by the local Batavia lodge members from any further advancement in this lodge because of the misdeeds by Morgan and because of this learned collaboration between the two. David Cade Miller had stake in a printing press. He wasn't just a distributor. The deal was that Morgan was promised one-fourth of the profits. Morgan's landlord, John Davids, and another man named Russell Dyer entered into a $500,000 penal bond with Morgan to guarantee its publication. This speaks to the financial motivations Morgan could have had for wanting so desperately to publish these Masonic secrets. As someone who seemed to have reverence and appreciation for Masonry to get the Royal Arch degree at Leroy Lodge, that's probably the most likely motive, especially after blowing his reputation in town and having to resort to stone-cutting and bricklaying in his mid-fifties. Now I'm going to be reconstructing the timeline of what happened to William Morgan next, using what I believe to be the earliest source material that's probably the most accurate depiction of actually what happened to him and what happened to the people involved and what happened to him. So you might read some differing accounts. Some of the details are different. Some of the, the timelines are different in the differing accounts of William Morgan you read about in different books, different Freemasonic history books especially. So I am actually sort of reconstructing different details using the timeline 
from a book based on a, a trial. At first, the local Batavia Lodge made their distaste and objections to Morgan publicly known by publishing an advertisement denouncing Morgan in the local newspaper. They denounced him for breaking his Masonic word by authoring the book. Never forget September 11th, 1826. From the pamphlet titled The Trial, The Kidnapping of William Morgan, published in 1827, it says, On the 7th of September, a convention of Masonic delegates representing six royal arch chapters was held at the House of Ganson in Stanford for the purpose, as was currently reported, of devising means for the suppression of the book. The result of their deliberations is necessarily unknown to the public. The evening of September 10th, 1826, Miller was at home at the time in his office slash residence but he had gotten wind that a few overzealous Freemasons from the local lodge had threatened to burn down his printing press. Miller was prepared and had a militia of his own as security. David Miller was a colonel in the U.S. Army and took it very seriously when he heard these rumors. Just as expected, the Masons came down that evening, attempting to burn the printing press. They were chased away by this militia, but in addition to just ruining and burning down the printing press, these masons wanted to make sure that no manuscripts existed and that no copies of it existed elsewhere. The book, The Trial, The Kidnapping of William Morgan, says, which invents much previous preparation was made to burn two houses in the village for their apparent purpose of destroying some printed sheets of the aforesaid book, in which house were sleeping 15 persons. The Masons weren't just overzealous enough to try to burn down a printing press. They also tried to burn down a house that had 15 people sleeping inside of it. Luckily, they were prevented but Captain William Morgan, as he called himself, was very upset hearing this news. He wasn't pleased that this huge financial windfall for himself could be disrupted by these so-called overzealous Freemasons. On the morning of September 11th, 1826, about sunrise, William Morgan, standing at the scene of Colonel David C. Miller's printing press, decides, perhaps naively, to report the attempted arson to a local judge. Judge Tracy, who lived about nine minutes away by foot. William Morgan stood at the printing press located at 55 Main Street 
Batavia, New York, where an MNT bank stands today. William Morgan decided to walk to Judge Tracy's house across town, which was at 209 East Main Street, which a YMCA now stands in the place of today in modern Batavia. And perhaps it was during Morgan's walk that maybe a little bit of fear started to set in. After all, the Masons had just not just tried to burn down a printing press, but were also willing to burn down a building with 15 people sleeping inside of it. Whether Morgan was just infiltrating the Masonic Lodge or not, he performed the Hiram of If ritual. And in this ritual, he agreed to what some people at the time called a blood oath, where if he revealed any Masonic secrets, his penalty would be death. Maybe Morgan previously didn't take this oath very seriously or even literally. As Captain Morgan walks up to the doorstep of Judge Tracy's house, he's grabbed. Perhaps in this moment, Morgan immediately realized that he should have brought his own militia, just like Colonel David C. Miller did the night before to protect his printing press. Captain William Morgan was forcibly seized and carried away by the local sheriff. He's taken into a stagecoach, which includes some local masons known by the names of Seymour, Holloway, Hayward, Howard, Cheeseboro, and Everton. Morgan must have immediately recognized some of these men as being his fellow brothers at the local Batavia Lodge but also from the Leroy Lodge as well. Maybe this is when Morgan also realized the magnitude of the crime that he had committed against the Freemasons. The stagecoach takes him to Conaduaga, a trip that takes a couple of days. When he gets to the courthouse in Conaduaga, he's examined before Justice Chipman, on the charge of stealing a shirt from a man named Kingsley for $2.61. The judge on its face believes this is a trumped-up charge for a man to travel multiple days by stagecoach by a local sheriff. Something seemed off to him, so he acquits Morgan. But this was a conspiracy to try to get Morgan in debtor's prison a conspiracy by the local sheriffs and the local Freemasons. The plan was to put him in debtor's prison to prevent the publication of his book. But an additional charge of being in debt for another unpaid loan still remained. And Morgan, unfortunately, was awaiting to be tried for that charge. Miller, his business partner, got wind of this and went to jail to bail him out. But Morgan gets immediately rearrested right after being let out of jail on a new charge. This new charge was made by a man who was part of the posse of Masons collaborating with the local sheriff's department that originally arrested 
Morgan in the first place. This man named Cheeseboro demanded a warrant against Morgan for a sham tavern debt of $2. Another allegation of an unpaid debt, for which judgment was immediately rendered and execution issued. Now, somehow the Masons had succeeded in getting him to stay in jail this time after their third attempt at sending him to debtor's prison, essentially. William Morgan was sent to the Conedogwa County Jail, where he laid until nine o'clock in the evening of the next day, when several Freemasons, including a man named Lawson, visited the county jail while the jailer was away. The jailer left his wife to fulfill overnight duties at the jail. And somehow the Masons were able to coax her into releasing Morgan for a sum of money, sort of an under-the-table bail fee, they said. They convinced her they were his friends. Ostensibly from friendly motives, these Masons convinced the jailer's wife to release Morgan. Now, I should stop here and say that this was the Masons' account of the story. But other accounts of the story say that the jailer himself was also a Freemason who was brothers with Freemasons Lawson and others who were part of this conspiracy, and that he simply allowed them to secure Morgan's release and then kidnap him. Another interesting coincidence is that while William Morgan was in jail in the Conedogwa County Jail, he actually shared a cell with Joseph Smith's father, Joseph Smith Sr., this information came from author Cheryl Bruno. It hasn't really been confirmed or unearthed what Joseph Smith was actually serving jail time for. Perhaps Morgan assumed his freedom again was thanks to his business partner, D.C. Miller. But he would soon find out he was walking into a trap because directly outside of the prison door, Morgan was violently seized again by Lawson and others in the presence of Mason, Sawyer, and Cheesebro. Morgan struggled and cried of murder. Apparently, Morgan yelled, Murder! 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 But was overpowered, gagged, and thrust into a coach, which drew up on a signal from Sawyer. Multiple witnesses saw him in this coach, driven by a man, Mason, named Hubbard, and filled with other Masonic conspirators. This was the very last time William Morgan would ever be seen again. Many people, including a judge, ended up going to jail for the kidnapping of William Morgan. But nobody was ever able to prove that he was murdered Although, the rumors that he had been murdered became extraordinarily strong in the local community, and as we'll see, nationwide. The general theory is that he went from Contenegro up through Victor, then to Pittsford, and up to Rochester, New York, and then the Masons from New York ended up taking him to Fort Niagara a symbolic military fort that was strategically important 
during the War of 1812. How did the Masons get access to a military fort? That's a good question. Nobody really knows. But probably because the military members that had access to that fort were also Freemasons. At Fort Niagara, the Masons historically claim that there was a meeting of New York Masons, and across the river, there was a meeting of Canadian Masons. They were trying to coordinate a deal with William Morgan. The deal that the Masons were content to give him $500 and 100 acres of land in Hamilton, Ontario. Instead of taking the land, the Masons claim he jumped on a ship and fled to Toronto and then to Montreal and then disappeared and relocated, abandoning his wife and two children. That's the official Masonic story of William Morgan. The court records show that several men were charged with the kidnapping of William Morgan and they were associated with Masonic lodges. There's no denying in the historical record that the Masons conspired to commit a crime to kidnap William Morgan and to try to burn down the printing presses. But there's a lot more to this story. The rumor that came out about what happened to William Morgan that night at Fort Niagara is as follows. Apparently many decades later, on a deathbed confession of one of the Masonic conspirators involved, He said that they kept Morgan in the Niagara Fort for seven days until September 19th. They kept him in the magazine of the Niagara Fort, which lined up with what anti-Masons had claimed about his kidnapping. And on this deathbed confession, this man says that Morgan was taken out to the Niagara River, exhausted and starving and sleep-deprived, but still alive. The Masons then wrapped him in heavy chains and threw him over the side to drown in the cold, dark, watery depths of the Niagara River. On September 12th, the day after Morgan's abduction, Mrs. Morgan, alarmed for her husband's safety, departed to make the journey to Kanadagwa with their infant daughter in tow. She had been contacted by two local Masons who played the role of good cop and told her that as long as she provided certain original manuscripts for Morgan's Masonic Secrets book that Morgan had asked her to keep safe, that they would take her to see Morgan and everything would be okay. After she agreed, the Masons essentially detained her. Halfway through the journey, her fear started to magnify, and she realized that something was amiss, that they weren't actually taking her to go see her husband, but instead were kidnapping her. She wasn't wrong. They never took her to see her husband as promised, but instead held her against her will for several days until Masons Ketchum and Ganson obtained the missing manuscripts. 
Ignorant of the fate of her own husband, the Masons then forced her to make the return journey by herself in the coach, unprotected, a two-day journey, which for any woman in the 1800s would have been punishment in and of itself. At the same time this was happening, after Mrs. Morgan had been detained by these vigilante Freemasons, one Jesse French appeared in Batavia, attended with more than 50 men with clubs. I'm going to continue to read from the book published a year later, The Trial, The Kidnapping of William Morgan. These 50 men with clubs, basically a Masonic lynch mob, forcibly seized William Morgan's business partner and publisher, David C. Miller, on a pretended criminal process issued by a justice of Leroy and carried him to Stafford, about four miles from Leroy, where he was detained till dark, locked up in a room over a door and guarded by five men armed with clubs. Here his friends and counsel at last found him, and finally, when brought before the justice, it appeared that the process was a civil suit brought by one Johns, but neither Johns nor French appeared to prosecute it or to declare the cause of action, and no warrant being returned, he was discharged. Nevertheless, French attempted afterward to rearrest and detain him on the same warrant. Everything announcing that Miller had been doomed to share the fate of Morgan, and only escaping by the energy of his friends and the yielding up of the manuscripts by Mrs. Morgan. Such a series of outrages in which the fraternity seemed degraded into a lawless mob for the subversion of civil rights and personal liberty could not fail to alarm and arouse the people. Public meetings were held. In most of the towns and counties near the scene of action, addresses voted and committees of investigation appointed whom the meetings pledged themselves to protect from illegal violence. These inquiries have presented the public with a mass of facts which have tended to keep alive the popular feeling and to affect the conviction of some of the offenders. The original David C. Miller edition of Morgan's book was published in two different editions, once from his Batavia printing press in 1826, and it was immediately republished in Rochester, evidently by a publisher known as Thurlow Weed. It was continued to be reprinted four different times throughout 1827. Although it's not known how many of the Masonic secrets Morgan intended to reveal made it into his pamphlet. Mrs. Morgan had given up some of the manuscripts. But perhaps this was really threatening to the Freemasons, that all of their rituals and the way that they looked during these rituals and the costumes that they wore and their secret codes and handshakes and the way that their lodges operated were now fully exposed. But what really did happen to William Morgan? What were they doing with him for those seven days in Fort Niagara? Maybe a clue can be gleaned from the different blood oaths that Masons are required to take in their first three degrees. An illustration ran 
in one of Thurlow Weed's newspapers. William Morgan is pictured again blindfolded, but this time standing, surrounded by masons with sharp daggers and knives. This resembles the Hiram Abiff third-degree ritual, where a candidate in masonry is led to believe that he will be killed, and under the penalty of death, a mason is supposed to recite to all of which I do solemnly and sincerely promise and swear without any hesitation, mental reservation, or secret evasion of mind in me whatsoever, binding myself under no less a penalty than that of having my throat cut across, my tongue torn out, and with my body buried in the sands of the sea at low water mark, where the tide ebbs and flows twice in 24 hours, should I ever knowingly or willfully violate this, my solemn obligation of an entered apprentice, binding myself under no less a penalty than that of having my left breast torn open, my heart and vitals taken thence, and with my body given as a prey to the vultures of the air, should I ever knowingly or willfully violate this, my solemn obligation of a fellow craft, binding myself under no less a penalty than that of having my body severed in twain, my bowels taken thence, and with my body burned to ashes, and the ashes thereof scattered to the four winds of heaven, that there remain neither track, trace, nor remembrance among man or masons of so vile and perjured a wretch as I should be, should I ever knowingly or willfully violate this, my solemn obligation as a master mason. So help me, God, and make me steadfast. Keep and perform the same. So mote it be. Thurlow Weed was extremely anti-Andrew Jackson at the time. He was a political man and had political aspirations, but he was also very influential in the press in what is known today as yellow journalism or sensationalism. But he seized on this real mystery, which, by all accounts, was a Masonic assassination of William Morgan. But in one of the illustrations, he portrayed William Morgan wearing a blindfold. This became a common theme in the William Morgan affair, as it became known, in the way it was portrayed. Similarly, to Paul Revere's infamous depiction of the Boston Massacre that helped kickstart the revolution. These illustrations in Thurlow Weed's newspapers helped tell the story of William Morgan. A year after his disappearance, William Morgan's business partner, Colonel David C. Miller, finally publishes William Morgan's book, Illustrations of Freemasonry. And it turns out that William Morgan wasn't just a slouch who stole these Masonic secrets off of another author or merely plagiarized an English writer. William Morgan's book, Illustrations of Masonry, shows that Morgan had patiently infiltrated Masonry to such an extent that he became a thorough student of it. 
Now, whether he just did this as a spy with the intention of always releasing the secrets will always remain a mystery, but based on the actual content of his book, it was a truly explosive document that probably set back the secret aspect of Freemasonry for many decades. If you actually read the book yourself, you can understand why they would have been so infuriated and threatened by it. Because most of the things in the book stand up today of being factually accurate revelations of Masonic secrets, secret handshakes, secret codes, secret words, and secret occult rituals. Until Morgan's book, most of this stuff was in the realm of lore or urban legend, or told, as I said earlier, in traveling shows in the form of spooky, dramatized Masonic rituals. At the time, some of the Blue Lodge rituals and costumes were known to the public through other various earlier leaks. But William Morgan was also exposing a newer, more mysterious sect of Freemasonry that had extra degrees that people thought of as being even more spooky. York Masonry, the York Rite, which had a subsect in it called Royal Arch Masonry. Morgan's book is extremely accurate. I've just finished reading it myself, and I didn't find anything specific in it that was hyperbolic or even necessarily conspiratorial. And even though the book itself is not hyperbolic or opinionated, it's pretty straightforward. The foreword to the book by D.C. Miller definitely has some strong opinions, which I'll read in a little bit. In fact, this could be seen almost like as a leak, a document dump, because even though Morgan didn't tape record or photograph the inside of Masonic Lodges, his memory and his ability to retain information was quite incredible for someone at the time. And his book essentially feels like a WikiLeaks dump of Masonic secrets. And interestingly, there are some parallels here between the way that his death was utilized by political actors in the United States and the modern death and murder of Seth Rich. Now, you could almost say that people who have tried to capitalize on the death of Seth Rich for their own political agenda in modern times maybe even learned a trick or two from Thurlow Weed and the anti-Masonic movement of the 1820s. In the foreword to William Morgan's book, Illustrations of Freemasonry, his business partner writes the introduction. And even though Colonel David C. Miller, his publisher, was a Christian, he had also tried to practice masonry himself, but was excommunicated from the same lodge Morgan was because of his involvement in partnering up with Morgan and publishing this book. So Colonel David C. Miller had some of his own insight about masonry, not just what he learned from Morgan. And interestingly, Colonel David C. Miller doesn't outright say that his business partner was murdered. Here's how he starts his introduction. In the absence of the author, or rather compiler, of the following work, who was kidnapped and carried away from the village 
of Batavia on the 11th day of September, 1826, by a number of Freemasons, it devolves upon the publisher to attempt to set forth some of the leading views that govern those who embarked on this undertaking. When we begin to pull down the strongholds of error, the batteries we level against them, though strong and powerful and victorious at last, arc at first received with violence, and when in our conquering career we meet with scoffs and revilings from the besieged partisans of untenable positions, it the more forcibly impresses us we are but men, and that in every work of reformation and renovation we must encounter various difficulties. For a full confirmation of our statement, we might refer to the history of the world. It is not our intention, however, to give a full detail of the whims and caprices man bring forth the historic records of other years as roof of the windings and shiftings of various characters who have strutted their brief hour on life's stage in order to convince that customs, associations, and institutions are like the lives of the authors and abettors, fleeting and fragile. Many of them rise up as bubbles on the ocean and die away. Circumstances give them existence, and when these causes cease to exist, they go into the same gulf of oblivion as countless exploded opinions and tenets have gone before them. In the present enlightened state to which society has advanced, we contend the opinions, tenets, and pretended secrecies of olden times handed down to us should be fully, fairly, and freely canvassed, that from the mist of darkness which they have hung over them, they should come out before the open light of day and be subject to the rigid test of candid investigation. These preliminary remarks lead as to the main object of our introduction. We come to lay before the world the claims of an institution, which has been sanctioned by ages, venerated for wisdom, exalted for light, but an institution whose benefits have always been overrated and whose continuance is not in the slightest degree necessary. We meet it with its high requirements, its, quote, time-honored customs, its swelling titles, and shall show it in the nakedness and simplicity. Strip it of its borrowed trappings, and it is a mere nothing, a toy not now worthy the notice of a child to sport with. We look back to it as, at one period, a, quote, cement of society and bond of union. We view it as, at one time, a venerable fort, but now in ruins, which contained within its walls many things that dignified and adorned human nature. We give it due credit for the services it has done, but at present, when light has gone abroad into the utmost recesses and corners of the world, when information is scattered wide around us, and knowledge is not closeted in cloisters and cells, but, quote, stalks abroad with her beams of light and her honors and rewards, we may now, when our minority has expired, act up to our character and look no longer to masonry as our guide and conductor. It has nothing in it now valuable that is not known to every inquiring mind. It contains, wrapped up in its supposed mysteries, no useful truth, no necessary knowledge that has not gone forth to the world through other channels and by other means. 
In the course of time, as society increased and knowledge becomes more general, it spread, and embracing its grasp, other objects than at first, it enrolled in its ranks men of the first respectability in wealth, talents, and worth. But that there is anything intrinsically valuable in the signs, symbols, or words of masonry, no man of sense will contend. That there is not any hidden secret which operates as a talismanic charm on its possessors, every man of intelligence, mason or no mason, must candidly acknowledge. It is worse than idleness for the defenders of the order, at the present day, to entrench themselves behind their outward show, the semblance before the world, and to say they are in possession of superior knowledge. We pretend not to act under a cover. We shall, quote, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Masonry, it is true, has long been eulogized in song. It has formed the burthen of the poet's theme and has been the subject of the orator's best performances. Fancy has been almost exhausted in bringing out new flowers to deck the fairy queen. But when we come behind the scenes, what is the picture we behold? Are we to rest satisfied with the ipsy-dixit of others, or to examine the truth for ourselves? The touchstone is before our readers in the present publication. Masonry is of itself naked and worthless. It consists of gleanings from the holy scriptures and from the arts and sciences which have shown in the world. Linking itself with philosophy and science and religion, on this it rests all its claims to veneration and respect. Take away this borrowed aid, and it falls into ruins. We meet this argument with facts that cannot be controverted. We put it on a basis that will fling into the background every quibble and artifice on the subject. And, in the language of a polemic writer, we challenge opposition to our position. Whenever Masonry claims, quote, kindred with the skies and exalts herself above every living, sublunary thing, then, with an unhallowed step, it obtrudes on the sacred borders of religion and decks itself in borrowed garments. Entrenched within these strong walls, decked with all the glitter of high-sounding professions, claiming what does not belong to it, it dazzles but to bewilder and destroy. In its train, in these United States, are enrolled many periodical works devoted to masonry. And under the guise of patronizing mechanics, the arts and sciences lend their aid to carry on the imposing delusion. They take up the specious title of throwing a little illumination on this benighted country from their secret depositories, arrogating to itself what should deck others' brows, assuming to be the patron, the life and the soul of all that is great and valuable. It deceives many of its votaries, and from its gaudy premises that most untenable and onerous conclusions are drawn. Are we astonished at the wild and heedless manner in which many of the votaries of masonry rush into every excess, putting at defiance the laws of our civil institutions, which suffer no one to put in jeopardy, but by due forms and disregarding the command of the Most High, which says, Thou shalt not kill? We can readily trace the cause to the impressions and practices obtained from its false tenets and descriptive arrogance. 
Masonry is to the modern world what the whore of Babylon was to the ancient. And it is the beast with seven heads and ten horns, ready to tear out our bowels and scatter them to the four winds of heaven. Masonry gives rogues and evil-minded characters an opportunity of visiting upon their devoted victim. All the ills attending combined power when exerted to accomplish destruction. It works unseen at all silent hours and secret times and places. And like death, when summoning his diseases, pounces upon its devoted subject and lays him prostrate in the dust. Like the great enemy of man, it has shown its cloven foot and put the public upon its guard against its secret machinations. And when the Masonic mania prevails, as it now does in this country, we are exalting a mere human ordinance with its useless trumpery and laughable accompaniments for the sublime and unadorned lessons of heaven. To some men, it is galling and mortifying in the extreme to give up their darling systems. With the increase of years, their fondness becomes so great that they cling to them with wild and bewildered attachment. But we would ask them, where now are the knights of Malta and Jerusalem and the objects that called forth their perils and journeyings? Where are the crusades and excursions on which our grand commanders, generalissimos and sir knights are to be engaged? and the mock dignitaries and puppet show actions of Masons and their imitation call forth pity and indignation when we now see the gaudy show in a lodge room and the train of normal officers with their distinction and badges and may give us some faint idea of scenes that are past and may gratify an idle curiosity. But what produces no substantial good under heaven? When monasteries and cloisters and inquisitor's cells and prisons have been broken up before the sweeping march of the moral mind, why this unnecessary mummery should be so much countenanced in this country, above all other countries in the world, is a matter of astonishment. The day we trust will never arrive here, when ranks in masonry will be stepping stones to places of dignity and power, when this institution will be a machine to press down the freeborn spirit of men. We have triumphed over tumult and clamor and evil speaking. When our book goes out to the world, it will meet with attacks of a violent nature from one source, and men of mock titles and order will endeavor to heap upon it every calumny. Men more tenacious of absolute forms and practice than they are attentive to truth and honor will deny our expositions and call us liars and impostors. Such is the treatment, however ungenerous and unjust, which we expect to meet, and for which we are prepared. Truth, we know, is majestic and will finally prevail. The little petty effusions of malice that will be thrown out will die with their authors, whom this work will survive. We now aver, in defiance of whatever may be said to the contrary, no matter by whom, how exalted his rank, that this book is what it pretends to be that it is a master key to the secrets of masonry, that in the pages before him, the man of candor and inquiry can judge for himself, and then a proper judgment will be formed of our intention. So those were D.C. Miller's very stern and long-winded words 
about why he felt this book was so important. And when he talks about the public rage being like a mighty river that's unstoppable, he's sort of predicting what's about to come. But I just want to reiterate that in a lot of ways, this incident was sort of like the proto-Seth Rich incident. What's different about this is it's not directly a leak of Masonic documents, but what it was was William Morgan basically surveilling the details of Masonic rituals, codes, and inside lodges to such an extent that what he produced in his book, Illustrations of Masonry, is almost like how you would imagine if WikiLeaks existed back in 1827 and they wanted to leak Masonic secrets, this is basically what it would look like. Short of having an actual internal Masonic document to leak, it would look like a published book that's just copying down all the things that were seen and witnessed from being inside of a Masonic lodge and gaining degrees, which apparently Morgan actually did. I want to go back to Joseph Smith. Now, I forgot to mention that at this time, Joseph Smith, a young man, lived in Palmyra, New York, which was only a 16-hour walk from Batavia, New York at the time. And it was only about five hours by horseback away from Batavia. So news traveled fast. And it's no doubt at this time, the anti-Masonic sentiment after the death of William Morgan had started to reach all the different areas of New York and already started to reach different parts of the country. Culturally, it had a huge impact. And Cheryl Bruno, the author that I quoted earlier, keeps going back to the Morgan affair as something that had continual influence over Joseph Smith's actions and timing. Because somehow Joseph Smith was utilizing all of these different things from American folklore, including buried treasure pirate stories, dowsing rods, magical talismans, Freemasonry, but it was doing all this at the same time that this extremely large and powerful anti-Masonic movement was about to explode in the United States. And I said it was a coincidence earlier in the story that Joseph Smith Sr. shared a jail cell with William Morgan in New York when he was in debtor's prison, but the connections actually get a little stranger as we go deeper into this story between what will become the anti-Masonic movement and Mormonism and Joseph Smith in the United States. Joseph Smith was arguably one of the most brilliant and sophisticated grifters in the history of the United States. He already convinced his local community as a young boy that he had special abilities with a divining rod or a dowsing rod, and then later with a seer stone. The stories about him seeing the angel Moroni in this cave and being given the opportunity to get these golden plates and then suddenly disappearing was already known around town. 
This was a story that had already been going around for actually years because Joseph Smith had already told people he returned to this location every year to see if the angel would reappear if he was pure enough to give him the plates. Some anti-Mormons from the time period came out and said that Joseph Smith had actually told the original version of the story as a murdered pirate ghost that told him that he could only get the treasure if he was pure. This ghost appeared in the form of a long-haired, old, wrinkled pirate with his throat slit from ear to ear. Now, this is actually very similar in a lot of ways to a very famous pirate story about Captain Kidd. But there's a lot of interesting parallels between the two, specifically the idea that in these old pirate stories that if the treasure hunter made a sound or got too excited about finding the treasure, that the treasure would actually vanish before his very eyes. Now, this is similar to Joseph Smith not being pure enough and watching the plates disappear before his very eyes when he tried to grab them. Now, keep in mind that Smith was only 17 years old when he told the story about his September 22nd, 1823 evocation of the angel Moroni. And as author Peter Lavonda says, perhaps Smith's genius lay in elevating the mundane and quote, superstitious practice of treasure hunting to something more sublime in transferring the bloody murdered pirate or the lonesome toad into an angel in flowing white robes bathed in divine light and the treasure into a sacred scripture with a new dispensation for humanity. And the plates themselves were not clay tablets written in cuneiform or ancient parchments written in Hebrew or Aramaic, but instead were leaves of gold on which was written, quote, reformed Egyptian. All of the basic elements of the treasure digging myth have been taken up and subtly but dramatically transformed. Now consider all these cultural elements that were sort of playing into this at the time. Joseph Smith was already obviously very well aware of burial mounds, which a lot of mounds had been already discovered by colonialists in the United States that, you know, people at the time didn't know how old they were. And some of them, like the Serpent Mound, which was found in Ohio, does date to before Christ. And it was known that Joseph Smith was already very well aware of this idea that people did treasure hunting on these Native American burial mounds. There were already people formulating theories that the Jews had visited the United States in somehow pre-biblical era. It should also be mentioned that Joseph Smith wasn't the only one sort of obsessed and interested in these Native American burial mounds and what their historical purpose might be. Thomas Jefferson actually ordered an excavation of a Native American burial mound, and he was extremely obsessed with them, it's said. George Washington was also similarly intrigued by Native American burial mounds. Peter Lavanda says in his book, The Angel and the Sorcerer, these two themes, burial mounds and ancient Jews in America, are central to the Mormon thesis. Now, Obviously, this is going to go into the temple myth, but for people who aren't familiar with the Book of Mormon, 
how does this have anything to do with Freemasonry? None of these things sound Freemasonic. What's really fascinating about Joseph Smith is he was such a keen grifter and so tapped into sort of the pulse of the American culture at the time. He was piggybacking simultaneously on the energy of anti-Masonry, the, the religious paranoia around it, and he saw value in the myths surrounding Masonry and in the occult practice in order to essentially start his own cult and own religion, taking all these elements from culture that were already very popular and very charged at the time. But just on its face, the Masons, of course, were very, very obsessed with Egyptian iconography and architecture. These golden plates were written in hieroglyphics. The Book of Mormon heavily leans on the idea that the Native Americans are the lost tribe of Israelites, that they are Jews that somehow journeyed over to the United States. Now, in the Book of Mormon, it also talks about how they came from the original temple, King Solomon's temple. So you can see where this is going, that these were the original Jews who preserved the original temple rituals. And on the evening of September 22nd, 1827, Joseph Smith claimed this is when he did his final magic ritual. After four years of trying to obtain the golden plates from the angel Moroni, he had now obtained in his hands, performing the evocation again, the angel Moroni appeared before him, and this time showed him the location of the plates, which Joseph was able to reach in and grab and physically touch for the first time. Joseph Smith claims that the artifact that was made of gold and was a series of golden plates. It had language on it, which was written in strange-looking hieroglyphics and was also lying next to a pair of magic spectacles that would allow him to read the hieroglyphics and interpret them. Now, there's two different interpretations of the spectacles. One interpretation is that they're actual, literal spectacles with magic lenses in them, the other interpretation is that there were actual seer stones, a pair of stones, the Urim and Thummim, which Smith placed again in his hat and stared into to get the translations from. Peter Lavanda touches on this in his book and how Mormons have continually revised their own internal language and the way they describe things to distance their own church from the roots and folk, occult, magic, and Freemasonry. Those terms that I just told you, the Urim and Thummim, actually come from the Bible. And any time any of Joseph Smith's magical traits or abilities are referred to by the Mormon church now, they'll simply just go back to a biblical story, like about Moses or other biblical figures who used magical objects as a rationalization for it instead of reflecting on or acknowledging that Joseph Smith not only came from a religious revivalist era, but also was a practitioner in the occult. Now, Mormonism arguably became America's 
biggest cult based on the occult. Even though the words have no relationship to each other, they're both derived from different Latin words that mean different things. Occult, to hide, and cult, to worship. But Mormonism would eventually combine both. Layers of secrecy and the worship of an enigmatic cult-like leader. The angel Moroni told Joseph the plates must be translated, printed, and sent before the world. Of course, to do this, Joseph Smith needed a lot of money. And at the time he got this vision, he was completely broke. 20-year-old Joseph Smith sent his own mom to the home of a local rich landowner named Martin Harris. Harris was a close friend of the Smith family in general, and by this time, he'd become a firm believer in the powers of the 20-year-old Joseph Smith in his ability to use a seer stone and to use a divining rod. Harris had already gotten wind of the golden plates and he was interested in finding out more. Harris immediately demanded to go see the plates at the residence of Smith. Smith's mother obliged. When Harris arrived at Smith's home a few days later, Joseph Smith opened what probably appeared to be a treasure chest and lifted out several gold plates. Joseph Smith had convinced Martin Harris that he had the plates sent to him by the angel Moroni and that the angel had actually told him to quit the company of the money diggers. For some reason, this convinced Harris to immediately give Joseph Smith $50 and at that moment gave Joseph Smith his word that he would sponsor the translation of the golden plates. This enabled Smith to pay off all his local debts. And he took his new bride, Emma, to Harmony Township, Pennsylvania. On the way to Harmony, Pennsylvania, they secured the golden plates in a glass box hidden during the trip in a barrel of beans. Joseph Smith and Emma, still not having very much money, needed to stay with Emma's father, Isaac Hale. Isaac Hale had also gotten wind of these golden plates and the stories that Joseph was telling. He demanded to see them. Joseph refused and instead only let him lift the lid slightly to peek inside the glass box. So Emma's father, Isaac, refused to let them keep the plates inside the house if he was not allowed to see them. So during this time, Joseph Smith hid the plates in the woods. They eventually secured their own place on their father's land and then were able to bring the plates inside. Joseph apparently kept them wrapped in a towel to hide them from public view. Martin Harris had agreed to translate the plates and 
Apparently they were translated by Joseph just reading in real time off of these plates, as he was the only one allegedly who could read these modified hieroglyphics. For the next few months, Martin Harris ended up transcribing 116 pages, which was the original version of the Book of Mormon. But a series of tragedies was about to besiege Joseph Smith in this original manuscript. It was at this time that Joseph Smith wanted to get his work verified by other external sources. So he wrote down a series of these hieroglyphics and wanted to get them looked at by other experts in the field. Now, it seemed like this again was part of a grift because Martin Harris talked to a classical linguistics professor at Columbia College named Charles Anton. And Harris came back and said that Anton had acknowledged the authenticity of the hieroglyphics. But when Anton was later asked about it, he declared that Martin Harris was either deluded or insane and that the document was clearly a hoax. Apparently it didn't matter if it was authentic or not because Harris was still on board. He was still along for the ride and he was still funding this operation. He also still promised to sponsor Joseph Smith's ability to get the book published. Smith's original manuscripts started with a story about a man named Lehi in Jerusalem and ended with a story about King Benjamin, one of his descendants in the Americas. Now, just talking about the general political climate in the United States at this time, there was a growing sense of anti-Masonry based on the William Morgan kidnapping, also known as the Morgan Affair. This was an event that, as I said earlier, was heavily promoted by news publisher Thurlow Weed. And Thurlow Weed had started publishing subsequent reprints of the William Morgan book, the posthumous book, Illustrations of Masonry. Now, there were already about four or five reprintings at this time by the middle of 1828. And also, the idea of anti-Masonry had already entered into the mainstream political sphere. It wasn't just paranoid people discussing this sort of conspiracy theory that had been hyped up in the news. It was actually completely taken seriously, and it wasn't like in the sense that the Seth Rich thing is still remains on the fringes three or four years after it happened. It's more like this immediately became a mainstream political topic of discussion. And even the president at this time started taking it very seriously. John Quincy Adams the son of John Adams, who was best friends and close colleagues with all of the original Freemasonic founding fathers. Joseph Smith was already looking for publishers of his book at the time with the help of Martin Harris. And it's said that one of the publishers that Joseph Smith was looking at immediately was Thurlow Weed. Because the Morgan affair was so explosive and was creating such political sea changes in the United States that Joseph Smith wanted to take advantage of that climate. And in a way, he thought that what he was doing was anti-Masonic because it was bringing back the original temple rituals, but at the same time believed that Masons 
had some bastardized original form of the temple rituals that they practiced. By February 1828, an actual political party had formed in upstate New York called the Anti-Masonic Party. Upstate New York was, of course, the location of Batavia, New York. Upstate New York, you know, Niagara, it's not really, even then, it wasn't considered the most, you know, prominent part of New York. So this was still relatively obscure party that had formed around this local event. But Thurlow Weed is largely credited for basically kickstarting the anti-Masonic party through his newspapers and through his political reach and connections. Now, Thurlow Weed, in a similar way to how Fox News and Sean Hannity sort of exploited the death of Seth Rich, I'm not sure what Assange really knows in terms of Seth Rich, or if he was fully serious when he was implying that he was the source of the DNC leaks. But just another parallel with that event is that Thurlow Weed, apparently later in 1829, was asked after a corpse washed up on the shores of the Niagara River, Thurlow Weed's papers ran stories claiming this was definitely William Morgan and that the Masons had definitely killed him. Morgan was probably killed. I mean, he disappeared forever. His wife and two children were left alone. Um, it just doesn't make sense that he would leave them out of voluntary choice. But Thurlow Weed exploited this death, this unknown corpse that had washed up on the shores of Niagara and had all of his newspapers push the idea that it was William Morgan. And he was later asked about this in private, and apparently he said that it made a good enough Morgan. He didn't really think it was William Morgan, but it served his purpose. Now, there's also obvious parallels here to right-wing people like Steve Bannon, Breitbart, you know, the people on Team Trump exploiting conspiracy theories and sort of just waging an information war to stoke the flames of populism, to stoke the fire of populism. And this is sort of what Thurlow Weed did in a large way, because it had real ripple effects and spilled over into American politics. The anti-Masonic party started to gain an extremely large amount of momentum in upstate New York. And at this time, it wasn't just in politics that anti-Masonry started to explode over the Morgan affair. It was also in local churches all around the country. Many churches passed actual resolutions condemning any ministers or anybody affiliated with the church who were Freemasons. And several mainstream denominations of Christianity at the time as a result of the Morgan affair, including Presbyterian, Methodist, Baptist, and Congregational churches condemned Freemasonry officially. So this was sort of the first time that it had moved from the Catholic Church and the Pope, you know, condemning Freemasonry in the 1700s, to now actual Christian branches, denominations, were officially condemning Freemasonry. The people who are supporters of John Quincy Adams, who is currently the president, sympathize with the anti-Masons, but they more just sort of use the anti-Masonic sentiment as a wedge issue against John Adams' rival, Andrew Jackson at the time, who was a hardcore Freemason. The anti-Masons actually disliked both presidents, even though John Quincy Adams wasn't a Freemason or technically was a Freemason, he was still too close to that aristocracy 
and that Freemasonic good old boys club that they very much disliked. Thurlow Weed, newspapers, and other anti-Masonic party newspapers included over a hundred different newspapers and pamphlets, which included the National Observer and Thurlow Weed's Anti-Masonic Inquirer, and also the Albany Journal. Solomon Southwick, who was the owner of the National Observer, which was heavily anti-Masonic, also tried running for governor of New York on an anti-Masonic ticket. He didn't win, but a bunch of other New York anti-Masonic who were running for office in the state of New York did win different seats, and they gained an incredible amount of power in New York State. Now, also being published at this time was the Anti-Masonic Almanac. And the Anti-Masonic Almanac, which you can look up on Google Image or in different various libraries, is basically just a series of hyperbolic anti-Masonic writings and illustrations. And these illustrations, you know, started by portraying William Morgan as being someone who was merely just blindfolded and kept in a dungeon, the magazine at Fort Niagara, as a prisoner, and then drowned. Eventually, these drawings became more and more sort of satanic looking, where in a later drawing from 1828, it shows William Morgan being lifted up on a rope over a flaming barbecue pit, and the Masons are wearing ghastly masks that look almost sort of satanic. At the core of the anti-Masonic belief system was the very simple belief that they themselves stated in their own writings that all Masons must be purged from public office. And they didn't even go about it in the sense that they didn't even make the issue of them practicing the occult or being irreligious the primary issue. Their primary issue was that Freemasonry had become too big of a good old boys club in the United States and that it transcended law and order and civil liberties. That if someone committed a crime and happened to be a Freemason in a lodge, if that judge was also a Freemason who was trying the crime, they would let the criminal off. And subsequently, if someone didn't commit a crime but wronged a Freemason, like William Morgan, they might be basically railroaded and sent through a kangaroo court system controlled by Freemasons who are all part of this good old boys club. And in that sense, anti-Masons were absolutely right. I mean, there were definitely things anti-Masons believed in that were completely righteous and moral. But the movement became weaponized very quickly by people who wanted to exploit the political landscape. I think they sort of saw the tide coming that there was going to be a pushback against Freemasonry because of how goddamn big it had gotten in the United States. And this was sort of their time to stoke the flames of populism. John Quincy Adams also used anti-Masonic rhetoric against Andrew Jackson during the 1828 election. But unfortunately, even though the anti-Masons basically put their name on the map during this election, even though they did not yet have a presidential candidate, they had established themselves as the first true third political party in the United States. Yes, you heard that correctly. The anti-Masonic party was the first third party, third political party in the United States, historically. And on March 4th, 1829, 
John Quincy Adams leaves the presidency and loses to dedicated Freemason and former general Andrew Jackson. And because Andrew Jackson was a Freemason, this especially inflamed the already existing anti-Masonic movement. And I should mention here too, something I forgot to mention, is that the people, the Masons sentenced in Morgan's kidnapping, only got about a year in prison each, which people thought was way too lenient at the time. And even the governor of New York at the time, who was a Freemason, offered a reward of $100 for the kidnapping of Morgan. Basically playing into the populist outrage, raised the donation amount to $5,000, a reward for information about the kidnapping of William Morgan. Andrew Jackson was now president of the United States. Jackson wasn't just any old Freemason, but he was a high-ranking Freemason. That's why I say a dedicated Freemason, dedicated to the craft. Jackson served as the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Tennessee from 1822 to 1824. This makes Andrew Jackson the seventh president of the United States and also the third Freemasonic president of the United States following James Monroe. Andrew Jackson was already infamous for being fierce and a cold warrior. Let me just read a little bit again from the People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn about what Jackson did in between the Battle of 1812 and him winning the presidency. Jackson's work had brought the white settlements to the border of Florida, owned by Spain. Here were the villages of Seminole Indians joined by some red stick refugees and encouraged by British agents in their resistance to the Americans. Settlers moved into Indian lands. Indians attacked. Atrocities took place on both sides. When certain villages refused to surrender, people accused of murdering whites. Jackson ordered the villages destroyed. Another seminal provocation, escaped black slaves, took refuge in seminal villages. The slaves often lived in their own villages. Their children often became free. There was much intermarriage between Indians and blacks. And soon, there were mixed Indian-black villages, all of which aroused southern slave owners who saw this as a lure to their own slaves seeking freedom. Jackson began raids into Florida, arguing it was a sanctuary for escaped slaves and for marauding Indians. Florida, he said, was essential to the defense of the United States. It was that classic modern preface to a war of conquest, thus begun the Seminole War of 1818, leading to the American acquisition of Florida. It appears on classroom maps politely as Florida Purchase, 1819, but it came from Andrew Jackson's military campaign across the Florida border, burning Seminole villages, seizing Spanish forts until Spain was, quote, persuaded to sell. He acted, he said, by the immutable laws of self-defense. Jackson then became governor of Florida Territory. He was now able to give good business advice to friends and relatives. And just another example of what kind of character Jackson was, flying in the face of this idea that he was sort of a anti-elitist. When he became governor of Florida, he just basically helped almost like insider trading with all his friends and family. 
he knew that certain currents were going to shift because of the economic windfall that Florida was. And he suggested to a friend, a surgeon general in the army, to buy as many slaves as possible because the price would soon raise. After leaving his military post, he gave advice to officers on how to deal with the high rate of desertion, says Howard Zinn. Jackson suggested whipping for the first two attempts and the third time, execution. So by this time, Freemasonry didn't just represent noblemen and enlightened men or noble generals like George Washington, and now represented sort of a rugged individualism version of Freemasonry, a 1800s frontier era version, perhaps, one that now had a new characteristic, xenophobia, racism, and even genocide against Native Americans. Now at this time, Joseph Smith was also trying to take advantage of this sort of political climate and kind of hysterical and more paranoid climate that was on the increase since the early 1800s. This is when Joseph Smith had a very unfortunate series of events fall upon him. Martin Harris, his confidant and his ally and his essentially his sponsor and his funder, backing up just a little before the election, by December 1828, Martin Harris was having marital problems with his wife Lucy while he was toiling over the translations of Joseph Smith's golden plates. And his wife Lucy, part of their marital problems derived from Lucy not being allowed to see the plates herself. At this time, hoping to appease his own wife, Martin Harris convinced a reluctant Joseph Smith to allow him to take the now 116-page manuscript pages with him on a visit back home in Palmyra. And this is where the story just simply does not seem believable, because Smith, at this time, for some reason trusted Martin Harris enough to take the only copy And Smith made Harris sign a written oath that he would only show the pages to five specific people in his family. Sadly, while Harris was on the journey to visit his wife in Palmyra, Joseph Smith's wife, Emma, gave birth to their first child. But the boy was deformed and stillborn. And this left Emma deathly ill for a period of two weeks. Smith was devastated. He was completely despondent over losing his child. And he also had great hopes for his firstborn child. He would repeatedly tell people that the child would see the plates and that the child would be able to assist in the translation. Smith had fallen into a downward spiral of depression and sadness. But at least he still had his 116-page manuscript that he was about to show the world. But what happened was Smith mysteriously did not hear from Harris, and weeks went by where he did not hear a word. Smith traveled to Palmyra in the middle of the summer, and 
he had heard something else extremely devastating. He had heard secondhand that Martin Harris had lost the manuscript pages and had been avoiding Smith this entire time. And also, despite signing this oath, Martin Harris had been exhibiting the manuscript to numerous visitors. Who knows how many people he had shown it to at that point. When Joseph Smith lost the manuscript, he exclaimed, Oh my God, all is lost, all is lost. What shall I do? I have sinned. It is I who tempted the wrath of God. Joseph Smith later said that as part of penalty for losing the manuscript, the angel Moroni appeared to him one more time and took away the Urim and Thummim, his seer stones, and did not return them until September 22nd, 1828. The autumn equinox and anniversary of the day he first received the plates. Smith also said that the angel didn't just take back the seer stones, but also took back the plates and returned them on the same day he returned the stones. It is now 1829, and by February 1829, Joseph Smith had begun translating sporadically with Emma as scribe. According to Emma, Smith no longer used the Urim and Thummim in translation after he lost the original manuscript. Instead, he exclusively started using his dark seer stone. And it's said that he translated by sitting, quote, with his face buried in his hat with the seer stone in it and dictating hour after hour with nothing between us. While looking at the stone, he, quote, rested his elbows upon his knees and drew the hat, quote, closely around his face to exclude the light so that the, quote, spiritual light would shine. So at this time, there were all these different books that Smith was dictating. And they were sporadic. They were being sporadically dictated. And these were derived from the plates. And they comprised of these different books. The first book of Nephi, the second book of Nephi, book of Jacob, book of Enos, book of Jarum, book of Omni, words of Mormon. The second plate contained the contents of book of Mosiah, book of Alma, book of Helamon, third Nephi. Fourth, Nephi, Book of Mormon, Book of Ether. And these all comprise in what is known today as the books of the Book of Mormon. And it's around this time that obvious signs of Joseph Smith's enigmatic cult leader style behavior becomes quite obvious, if it wasn't already obvious enough, is that he continually was able to recruit all these random people to just get in on his grift and believe in him, essentially. And one of these new people was a man named Oliver Cowdery. Cowdery was a school teacher from Vermont, and he heard about Smith's golden plates while he was boarded with the Joseph Smith senior family during his school year. 
Joseph Smith started to actually imbue his own followers and translators and allies with spiritual gifts and powers to sort of make them believe more in Joseph Smith's own prophecies. And Joseph Smith told Cowdery that he had a gift that could allow Cowdery to translate some of these ancient hidden records and that the, quote, keys of this gift to translate would be given both to Smith and to Cowdery so that he was sort of telling Cowdery, you know, these prophecies I'm getting, eventually you're going to be able to read them too, just like me. And according to Smith, he would start telling people that there were other artifacts that needed to be translated also, that he learned these in some of the visions that he had. So he would sort of, you know, put out there this like carrot on a stick approach and be like, hey, you know, these are the other plates hidden around the country. So maybe, you know, if you find them, like you, you might have this power now to translate them. And just obviously carrot on a stick, cult mentality, you know, manipulation techniques. A revelation by Joseph Smith stated that uh, Cowdery's translation of hidden records would have to wait until after Smith had fully translated the golden plates. Of course, of course they would, because he continued to use this guy Cowdery as a scribe. He became essentially the new Martin Harris Cowdery actually said that the translation of what is now the Book of Third Nephi led Smith and Cowdery to pray so that they could receive authority to baptize. And then after they did that, Cowdery claims that an angel appeared, granting them that authority. So at this time, Joseph Smith was already having other witnesses, other people claim that these, these visions were happening sort of collectively. It wasn't just Joseph Smith anymore. So this is sort of at the point when it already started to become a cult, even before the Book of Mormon was published. And then after they got this authority, they baptized each other in a river near their home in Harmony. Ten days later, they baptized another man named Samuel Smith. And Samuel Smith, in May of 1829, also became a scribe. And this sort of became a theme. More and more of these scribes and quote-unquote witnesses to Joseph Smith started appearing, almost like his own disciples, like a self-proclaimed Jesus-like, Messiah-like figure. Early makings of that. Around summer of 1829, the Book of Mormon, as we know it today, all these different books of Mormon that I just read off to you, were already completed. And this was sort of a retcon of that original 116-page manuscript. And it's also kind of interesting to think, what would what did that original manuscript say? Because if Joseph Smith was just pretending that he was reading stuff off of a plate to a person in real time, just like improvising essentially off of it, or maybe he had pre-written it at some point, You know, only if he had pre-written it and like sort of was performing a trick where he was reading off something or had memorized something that had already pre-written. Only then maybe was he careful enough to not repeat or change any of the information. Because if he'd already had someone write a 116-page manuscript based on his real-time translations, reading from nonsense hieroglyphics, then if he didn't, already have it all pre-prepared, sort of in a tricky way, tricky and clever way, 
then he might have actually sort of accidentally retconned and modified his original translations without even realizing it, just because he couldn't remember what he had said, because it was made up. This is not, <laughs> in, in case you were confused during this podcast, I am not saying that I believe that Joseph Smith was actually getting instructions from the angel Moroni, nor do I even think that Joseph Smith thought that he was. I think that Joseph Smith was possibly America's greatest con artist. And I think that he's not looked at that way in history because people almost don't want to give him credit. It's almost sort of like giving L. Ron Hubbard credit for being a really good con artist. Joseph Smith is the best in history, American history, I think. So at this time, Joseph Smith is just trying to get the Book of Mormon published through all these different people. I already mentioned earlier that one of the people that he tried to get it published through was Thurlow Weed, Thurlow Weed's publishing company. And, you know, Joseph Smith was also sort of a savvy, he wasn't just like a con artist cult leader. He was a savvy sort of manipulator, business savvy guy too. You know, he just started approaching all these different people. But what he did was, after they traveled to Rochester, New York, in the summer of 1829, when they approached Thurlow Weed to publish the book, he declined it. So what they did was they actually went to one of Thurlow Weed's competitors. They approached Thurlow Weed's competitor named Elihu F. Marshall, and he actually agrees to publish the book. And they just keep trying to find different people who'll give them a better deal. They're like playing all these people off against each other. So that sort of speaks to the savviness of Joseph Smith as a businessman. And this also speaks to the connection between Joseph Smith's inspiration to write a book like this and try to get it published by a very famous anti-Masonic publisher. Joseph Smith was obviously very well aware that he was sort of piggybacking on the energy of that, the anti-Masonic movement and the climate at the time. And soon there were all these other disciples and witnesses. Uh, a revelation by Smith commanded Cowdery and different people that were already following him to seek out 12 disciples. And Smith said, go into all the world to preach my gospel unto every creature. And this is obviously his sort of Christ-making self-proclamation moment. You get other hints that Smith just kept saying that angels and different spirits would visit him and say that to certain people, he'd be like, okay, the angel told me today that you're going to get to see the plate. And they'd be like, oh, thank you, Joseph. Like, when can we see it? And he'd be like, I'll let you know. Like, I don't know when they'll let you see it yet. I mean, that's the kind of shit that he would do already, like even before the publication of the book. So I'm not even going to read to you all the different examples of him doing that. I mean, there's so many. And he already had several witnesses and he was already basically getting, you know, recruiting his own disciples. So also, you know, Smith had made the mistake of letting too many people look at the book. You know, he was already maybe too overzealous and not holding his cards close enough to his chest. And it had already leaked. Portions of the book were getting published in a Palmyra newspaper right around the new year in January 1830. And this obviously really pissed off Joseph Smith. You know, he wanted to be the leader of this. He wanted to be fully in control of releasing this. And at this time, they'd actually gotten a guy named E.B. Grondon to finally agree to publish the book. He was one of the first people they approached that they couldn't get to budge on the offer, but 
Now this guy, for some reason, decided to publish it. And he had already started publishing it, but it already started to get incredible pushback because a group of local Palmyra citizens passed a resolution calling for a local boycott of the Book of Mormon just a few months after it got published. As a result, the publisher, Grandin, E.B. Grandin, stopped printing later that month. In late March of 1830, Smith traveled from Harmony back to Palmyra, and the first advanced copies of the Book of Mormon were already becoming available. They were being distributed around, and Harris was attempting to sell them, but he wasn't getting any buyers. And it actually didn't sell too well. This was, of course, Joseph Smith's original sponsor and the guy who lost the original manuscript. They had rekindled their partnership and he was still sponsoring Joseph Smith's attempts. But actually, Harris waffled on his promise to pay the printing costs. And in response, Smith actually dictated a revelation commanding Harris upon penalty of eternal damnation he could not imagine to, quote, impart a portion of thy property, yea, even a part of thy lands, and all save the support of thy family, pay the printer's debt. So Joseph Smith was basically trying to hold his sponsor to account now by using apparent dictations to him from spirits. That's what kind of a fucking psychopath Joseph Smith was, but it worked. And Harris renewed his commitments to pay the printing costs. And on March 26, 1830, E.B. Grandin distributed the first copies of the Book of Mormon on store shelves, even after this uproar in town that already happened around it. This was called The Book of Mormon by Joseph Smith. Now, Mormonism took a little bit of time to really explode. And I'm going to go into the mythology, actually, that's contained in those books and how they relate to mythologies of Freemasonry eventually. But now we're going to go back to an extremely pivotal figure in Freemasonry named Albert Pike. And Albert Pike, in mid-1830, had just decided to stop teaching in Newport, Connecticut and make a journey to the new frontier. This wasn't something that he necessarily needed to do for money or for fame. He did it for a sense of adventure. And in early 1831, Albert Pike decided to leave to go on a hunting fur trapping expedition in Santa Fe, New Mexico, over a thousand miles away. Pike went with his friends, Luther Chase and Rufus Titcomb. Albert Pike and his two companions would have to procure their own horses and rifles and obviously heavy winter clothing as well because this journey would be long and they'd be going through open country where there would be snowstorms and blizzards. It was already at this time that Albert Pike was writing very colorful journal entries about the people that he surrounded himself with. They decided to join a caravan that had several foreigners included in it. There was a little Frenchman, an ex-sergeant of the French army. 
There was a one-eyed French-Canadian called Bastiste something who was a complete, quote, imbecile, Albert Pike said. Next came Antonio, a tall, dark, scowling Catalonian who was, quote, lazy and useless. And finally, there was a New Mexican Spaniard whom Pike then thought the best writer he had ever seen. So it was at this point that they followed this caravan of 11 men down the Santa Fe Trail. Pike started to describe having an affinity for certain people on his journey. In Missouri, in the fertile Missouri River Valley on his journey, he states in his journal, I love a Western man. There is so much open, brief, off-handed kindness, so much genuine honesty, excellence of heart, and steadiness of purpose in them, that they always claim, from him who knows them well, the utmost affection and respect. You, who have never left the shores of the Atlantic, cannot appreciate, you know nothing about their character. little coastal elite shaming there by Albert Pike. And his trip to Missouri also gave him the first view of the western prairie. He was quite taken with nature and the scenes that he was seeing that he'd really never seen before. And even though he just described the humbleness of the country folk, his writing speaks to a intellectual coastal influence and European influence. Because he says, You emerge from a deep, heavy body of timber of that solid, massy, continuous greenness that we never see in the east, and you gaze upon a broad, undulating plain covered with grass, mingled with flowers of the most gaudy colors, extending away, away, north, south, and west, with here and there a long line of timber on the edge of some watercourse, or a solitary grove standing like a lone castle and the garden-like greenness around it. Let not the reader imagine, however, that there is in these prairies any of the illimitable extent of vision which he has upon the ocean. By no means the horizon is rather limited, because the prairie is generally a succession of long, undulating, swelling ridges, and in traveling over them you are like one riding over the long, heavy swells of the sea. At one moment you see only the summit of the next ridge, and at the next you have a broad sea of a thousand colors before you. And it was around this time that Albert Pike started to have his first version of what you might consider his own version of visions, literally, because he saw mirages in the summer heat on these prairies. And mirages at the time were probably the closest thing to seeing what almost looked like a psychedelic, mosaic, fractal, hallucination without the aid of psychedelic drugs with your open eyes. Albert Pike found these mirages, as he called them, especially beautiful. He said, See far ahead, upon a long ridge, a running flame and a smoke, as though the grass on the ridge were burning. The fire and smoke appeared to him to curl and wane and float up spirally and quiver, at other times, he appeared to see a broad lake of rippling water. Leader of the caravan, bent, near the end of August, 
Fifteen other men were added to the caravan, and they all made the long, jolting passage to Santa Fe. And by September 10th, the additional 15 men and the original 11, including Pike's three companions, rumbled out of independence and took the slow march towards the desert. The next two or three months were extremely harsh, and Albert Pike had learned what it was like to be in complete survival mode. First, the entire caravan had to resort to drinking muddy river water for a few weeks straight. Several of the men got sick, and there was just a constant dry wind and freezing cold nights. The oxen from the caravan started to suffer severely, and they started to die slowly over time to the point where their numbers were 50% of what they started. The caravan was now followed by a pack of wolves at night, hoping for another morsel of dead oxen. In late October, in the afternoon, Albert Pike was crossing the desert with his caravan, with his horse, and during a loud and large gust of wind, in this dry desert on the Santa Fe Trail. His horse reared out from under him and started to run. Pike chased after it in vain. His horse had disappeared into a cloud of dust and sand. Pike was now on foot for the remainder of the trip to Santa Fe. At this point, in November, the snow started to fall. That night, Pike was given the duty of being night watchman, looking out for Indians. Pike grumbled in his journal and said, For what purpose? Indians never attack on such nights. As the night wore on, Pike noticed that the new snow fell thicker and thicker and that the cold grew more and more intense. By morning, his feet were so swollen and frozen that he could hardly walk. And he discovered to his horror that a horse had frozen to death within ten feet of him. Great God, he exclaimed, how those animals suffered. On November 18th, the men, completely unbeknownst to them, were walking into a blizzard that would make the history books. At this point, Albert Pike became convinced that Bent, Captain Bent, the leader of their caravan, was either intentionally trying to kill them or was going to kill them accidentally through sheer incompetence. Pike's feet had already almost frozen solid. And now, over half of the oxen and horses had frozen to death and were left behind. At this time, Albert Pike's winter clothing, even though he came very well prepared, was soaking wet. He didn't have a horse anymore, and all he had was a blanket. So, anytime he walked in the snow, the snow on the outside of his boots would thaw and eventually would soak through to his feet. Pike tried to keep warm by running back and forth between the caravans as they pushed on through the winter. That night, 
Pike found that his feet were so swollen that he could not remove his shoes, completely frozen solid, as if they were blocks of ice. His friends, his companions, finally helped Pike pull the shoes off. I don't think I ever had any worse pain, recalled Pike, than I had while my feet were thawing. The next day, I put on deerskin moccasins and walked all day without my feet getting cold at all and without any socks. I was walking the day after my feet were frozen. So he's already, you know, kind of being macho there. Like, check it out, man. My feet fucking froze completely solid, and the next day I'm just walking around like it's no big deal. I'm a fucking badass. I'm a six-foot-tall, 300-pound magician-looking fucking badass. Pike's companions now met a Mexican couple. It was the last week of November. They were in the valley of the Rio Fernando. Albert Pike encountered what he described as a tall, wild, smoked, Indian-like fellow. And he said, I think my dress would have excited considerable attention in your fair city of Boston. A cap of fur covered a long and tangled mass of hair. Leggings of blanket protected my nether limbs and thin moccasins my feet, and round me was wrapped a buffalo robe, one of which appeared my whiskered and mustached face, black as a Comanche's with pine smoke. Somehow, by December, Pike had made it to Santa Fe with his caravan. He had traveled over 500 miles on foot without a horse. Pike took an affinity to the new Mexican towns. He especially liked Taos. He said it felt new, strange, and quaint and reminded him of an oriental village. It felt to him like he was in, quote, a different world. Approaching Santa Fe for the first time, it looked to Pike like, quote, a whole city of brick kilns, the square, flat, adobe buildings at a distance appeared to Pike more like stacks of dried bricks than like houses. A common theme started to appear in some of Pike's writings in his journal, a dislike for certain sinful or unclean or unkempt peoples of color. Pike was not too impressed with some of the New Mexicans he met as people. He said that he found the women particularly unattractive, and he had disdain for the fact that he believed New Mexicans' daily pursuits seemed to be, quote, lounging on the blankets and the smoking of the cigarellos. By 1832, Pike and his companions had finally left Santa Fe, and on their journey back, they stayed with some Comanche Indians and befriended them. Albert Pike, in his journal, described them, quote, as being the most unattractive Indians he had ever seen. He said, The old women, particularly, were hideously ugly, with high cheekbones, long black hair, brown-smoked parchment-like skin, bleared eyes. On the way back, they encountered many Native American tribes, and by December 10th, 1832, Pike had estimated that he had walked 
the last 650 miles of the 1,400-mile journey that they had traveled since leaving Taos in September. So again, Pike is claiming that he had walked half of the journey, as he had claimed he did on the way to Santa Fe. And on the morning of December 10th, 1832, Pike and his companions took a ferry to complete their journey to Fort Smith, where they decided to stay for a little bit. He said, on that morning, I had on a pair of leather pantaloons, scorched and wrinkled by the fire, and full of grease, an old greasy jacket and vest, a pair of huge moccasins, and mending which I had laid out all my skill during the space of two months, and in so doing had bestowed upon them a whole shot pouch, a shirt, which made of what is commonly called counterpane, or a big checked stuff, had not been washed since I left house, and to crown all, my beard and mustachios had never been clipped during the same time. He seems oddly narcissistic and sort of strange, and someone who remembers witnessing him in Santa Fe, named William Waldo, said that Albert Pike was at this time tall, slim, and of sallow complexion, with nothing remarkable in his appearance but a large rolling black eye. He was shabbily dressed in a well-worn seal cap, common 40 or 50 years ago, which may have cost, when new, 50 cents, and other clothing to match. And everything about the young man's appearance indicated both destitution and despondency. It was around this time that Albert Pike settled in Little Rock, Arkansas, which at the time was an extremely new town with very few people in it. And Albert Pike started to develop a very keen interest in politics, and his already deep obsession with poetry started to intersect with politics. But we'll pick up that story in part three and go much deeper into Albert Pike then. Now comes the election of 1832, an election between two main candidates, Andrew Jackson and Henry Clay. But Jackson was facing a new type of challenge, one of a new third party, the Anti-Masonic Party. By 1830, the Anti-Masonic Party's movements to broaden its appeal enabled its spread to neighboring states, becoming especially strong after becoming strong in New York, in Pennsylvania and Vermont. The Anti-Masonic Party held its first political convention to nominate a presidential nominee. In actuality, this was the very first political convention of its kind in the history of the United States. And the nomination process that happened at this convention created the mold that the Republican and Democratic Party still use today in their own political conventions. They decided to nominate William Wart as their presidential candidate and Amos Elmaker as the vice presidential candidate. The convention was held on September 11th, 1830 in Philadelphia. Of course, this date was chosen to commemorate the fourth anniversary of the Morgan Affair. Never forget September 11th, 1826. William Wart, the nominee of the Anti-Masonic Party, 
was in fact a former Freemason himself. William Wirt had taken the first two degrees of Freemasonry in Jerusalem Lodge No. 54 in Richmond, Virginia, becoming a fellow craft or second-degree Freemason. And even though William Wirt took this position as a nominee of the Anti-Masonic Party, he still said that Freemasonry was mostly a good institution. And in his nomination letter, he wrote, quote, intelligent men of high and honorable character would never choose Freemasonry above their duties to their God and country. Historian William Vaughn wrote that William Wirt was possibly the most reluctant and most unwilling presidential candidate ever nominated by an American party. Apparently, they picked William Wirt because he privately was extremely critical of Freemasonry. But publicly, he barely said anything anti-Masonic, and this, of course, frustrated the anti-Masonic party greatly. He admitted later, quote, In the canvas, I took no part, not even by writing private letters, which on the contrary, I refused to answer whenever such answers could be interpreted into canvassing for office. William Wirt actually ended up getting, in the 1832 presidential election, 7.8% of the total vote, over 100,000 votes. He actually got six electoral votes. The seven electoral votes came for Vermont. So in essence, the first third party in American politics that ran a candidate in a presidential election actually carried an entire state. Andrew Jackson won the presidential election with 701,000 votes, gaining 54% of the popular vote. He carried 209 electoral votes in 16 states against Henry Clay, who only carried six states and gained 49 electoral votes. The anti-Masonic party continued to play a major role in US politics. A lot of early and young up-and-coming politicians who were hungry became anti-Masons. It was pretty much the hottest political party at the time. Some of the people from this anti-Masonic movement who had later actually gained prominent roles in government and later even become presidents, William Henry Seward and Millard Fillmore, they got their foot in the door politically through anti-Masonry. The anti-Masons eventually merged with the Whigs and then the Free Soilers and eventually with the Republican Party. Much later, in 1847, John Quincy Adams published a widely distributed book called Letters on the Masonic Institution that criticized the Freemasons and focused in on the Morgan affair. This book at the time probably stood up as the most credible anti-Masonic book. But speaking of William Morgan, let us end part two of Media Roots Radio's Freemasonic History of the United States podcast series with a quote from William Morgan's book, Illustrations on Masonry. On one of his last chapters, William Morgan says, a very small proportion of Masons, comparatively speaking, ever advance any further than the third degree, and consequently never get the great word which was lost by Hiram's untimely death. 
Solomon, king of Israel, Hiram, king of Tyre, and Hiram Abif, the widow's son, having sworn that they nor neither of them would ever give the word except they three were present. And it is generally believed that there was not another person in the world at the time that had it. Consequently, the word was lost and supposed to be forever. But the sequel will show it was found after the lapse of 470 years, notwithstanding the word Mahabon, which was substituted by Solomon, still continues to be used by master masons, a rid no doubt will be as long as masonry attracts the attention of men and the word which was lost as used in the royal arch degree. What was the word of the royal arch degree before they found the master's word, which was lost at the death of Hiram Abif and was not found for 470 years? Were there any royal arch masons before the master's word was found? I wish the Masonic gentleman would solve these two questions. Much later in his life, Albert Pike became an extremely influential, if not the most influential, practicing Freemason of the Scottish Rite Freemasonic Lodge. Albert Pike said in his book, Sublime Prince of the Royal Secret, magic is that which it is. It is by itself like the mathematics, for it is the exact and absolute science of nature and its laws. Magic is the science of the ancient magi and the Christian religion, which has imposed silence on the lying oracles and put an end to the prestiges of the false gods. Itself reveres those magi who came from the east, guided by a star to adore the savior of the world in his cradle. And a final quote from Albert Pike from his book, The Grand Pontiff. There are seven seals to be opened, that is to say, seven mysteries to know, and seven difficulties to overcome, seven trumpets to sound, and seven cups to empty. The apocalypse is, to those who receive the 19th degree, the apotheosis of that sublime faith which aspires to God alone and despises all the pomps and works of Lucifer. Lucifer, the light bearer, strange and mysterious name to give to the spirit of darkness. Lucifer, the son of the morning, is it he who bears the light? And with its splendors, intolerable, blinds feeble, sensual, or selfish souls? Doubt it not, for traditions are full of divine revelations and inspirations, and inspiration is not of one age nor of one creed. Plato and Philo also were inspired. Thank you for listening to this episode of Media Roots Radio. In our three-part series on the Freemasonic history of the United States. On the next episode of Media Roots Radio, we're going to go all the way to the 20th century. But we're going to continue and finish the stories of Joseph Smith, Albert Pike, and the anti-Masonic movement. Thank you for subscribing to Media Roots Radio. Take care, everybody. Tis well. <laughs>